Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall. Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall. Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall. No, I'm actually not Shelley Duvall. I'm Carlo. Or maybe I'm OC. <laughs> and I have my partner here, Stiggs. Ooh, and I, we're back. I could be Stiggs. Yeah, I just got to kind of talk <laughs> talk a little like this or something. <laughs> yeah. How's it going, Steve? Oh, I'm great. I am great. Season talk. We, I feel like I start every episode with some season talk, and there's no doubt the summer's wrapping up. I feel like the, the summer of anger is coming yeah. to a close. Dog days, man. Mm. Yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I, but I'm excited. You know, the winds are changing, but I'm excited for, for, mm -hmm. for this app. I feel like I'm going to learn something in this app. Yeah, I, I feel like I will too. Um, you know, so yeah, we do have a guest uh, today. And uh, the way I wanted to introduce her was actually, um, so it's been interesting. We've been getting a lot of followers recently. We're, we were pushing closer to 100, but then it dropped because uh, oh, Twitter or X, as you like to call it, um, I guess did a purge. We we have a lot of bot followers, but we got the, to the bots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got one recent follower and I was like, wait a minute, this is a real person. And it was somebody that I actually had like randomly liked one of her posts, you know, you know how the algorithm sure. just shows up and then she followed us. And um, yeah, I, th I thought she had like a very interesting profile and her name cool. is Christina Politano. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. Thank you. So thank you for coming on. It's very, uh, very nice to meet you. This is going to be exciting. To, we're going to get to know each other. And man, what a topic. Yeah. Uh, and that was the thing, too. It was like I was just looking at her post and I was like thinking, yeah, she'd, she'd make for a good guest for the show. Um, and I asked her um, what um topics she would like to talk about whether it be a filmmaker or a particular film so she actually it was like pure kind of kismet because um she mentioned altman and then i had mentioned another altman to you steve recently that i had seen and i recommended to you so i was like man mm -hmm. this would make for a good altman double feature so we're actually going to be doing three women and oc and stigs mm, very similar yeah this is gonna be good <laughs> All right, but before we get into that, <laughs> yeah. uh, let's get into our appetizers, Steve. It's time for movie food appetizers, appetizers, appetizers. It's movie food appetizers. <laughs> yeah, let's dig in, Carlo. Yeah, how do you want to start? All right, well, usually since we have a guest, we tailor mm. certain questions for them. You know, like I, I, I like to do a little bit of research. And then ask a few questions um, just to get to know them better and for our, our listeners to get to know them better. Yeah. And kind, so, of, kind of like put them on the hot seat like immediately, yeah, which I kind of exactly. like. Exactly. And yeah, I, I, I got some heaters in these questions. So oh um, just so that you guys know, I'm already sweating bullets over here. <laughs> I'm uh, okay. Look, I'm really okay. nervous that you're going to actually realize that I'm, I've, this whole time I've actually been a bot. Sometimes bots are real people. <laughs> Sometimes bots are oh, yeah. true. Um, so sorry to disappoint you. That's I know. Exciting. Cool. <laughs> yeah, you're you're a very consistent bot, Christina, if that's the case. <laughs> you know, there, there there's like a specific character that this bot is playing online, I feel. Bots like um Yeah, bots are just mm. what are bots? They're just algorithms, right? 
yeah. bots are, are just single personality people yes. and we yeah. and we want them <laughs> back and we need to tell you know the the, the owner of Mus uh, the owner of x that we want our bots back <laughs> yeah exactly we want 100 followers come on <laughs> <laughs> we have yeah, we're down to like 77 again because of totally. <laughs> the bot purge. Wow, I didn't realize that I'm discovering that we are a pro-bot uh, uh, podcast. A, we are a pro-bot <laughs> society, okay? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. Great point. Um, so uh, from what I've gleaned from your profile, uh, is it safe to assume that you're Italian? Yeah, I'm Italian-American. Okay, perfect. <laughs> hey, all right. Hey. Cool. Hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Perfect. So, um, and you're also on the East Coast. That's right. I'm this very rare Coast, specimen Coast. of Italian American. I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> New Jersey. Hey. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right then. So I guess that's my first question. Are you a Mercedes Benz saleswoman with BPD? Oh, I. You know what? I do. I have a. <laughs> I have a Mercedes, but it's a uh, it's a 1980. Yeah. Wow, yeah. vintage. And oh, wow. uh, and um, well, I I don't know what to tell you. I could I could try to sell it one day. <laughs> and so sell the Mercedes or sell that your BPD. You can, what, what what can you do with BPD? Can you sell it? I don't think so. I think you just gotta hide wow. it until it just comes out, and you just throw a stake <laughs> in your boyfriend's head, and then he yeah, never talks true. to you again. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, one of <laughs> your boyfriend's like uh, friends comes to talk to you and tells you that you're never to talk oh, to him again. <laughs> oh man. So you're a serial killer. Yeah. You you you've murdered seven relationships. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> Wait, is this is this is this what Gloria what did Gloria really do wrong? I mean, stalking, <laughs> I guess. I guess the stalking yeah. and the yeah. Yeah. Vandalizing uh, the other girlfriend's tires. <laughs> Yeah, and then hot and cold kind of thing, you know, it's like, yeah, that kind of confused Tony a little bit. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, and Tony did nothing wrong, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously, he's always, you know, guilt-free. Um, yeah, just for people who, exactly. who don't understand the reference, we're talking about Gloria Trillo, who you kind of look like, you have, like, you play into this, right? You um, kind of have some photos that are Gloria Trillo-esque or, like, um uh, marissa tomei i mean you, you told us your your name is a play on uh your your twitter handle your x handle is a, a play on marissa tomei's character in um in my cousin Vinny. you have that look yeah i uh i always want to kind of pay tribute to the greats you know annabella shora not not only yeah. a brilliant actress but um uh, everything she went through with her trial against uh, Harvey Weinstein, Man, you know, it's yeah. uh, it's kind of a wild story. I don't know if you've ever looked into it, um, but she's a brilliant actress. I think she won like an Emmy for that role, right? In oh, well deserved. Yeah. And um, yeah, gotta love Marissa. Marissa, uh, Marissa Tomei and my cousin Vinny is, you know, one of those classic performances. Yeah, I, I, no that's actually a blind spot for me. Um, <gasps> yeah, I've never seen my cousin Vinny. <laughs> Add it to the list. My gosh. Um, yeah. And speaking of Annabella Sciorra, there's actually a, a movie of hers that I don't think anybody talks about. And it's kind of been buried. Like, I think it got like a DVD release, but that was it. It's not streaming anywhere. Um, do you know this movie, um, Christina, called True Love? No, I don't think so. Oh, yeah. It, it's it's her and Ron Eldard, who was like in Sleepers. 
and it's directed by Nancy Savoka. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, but it, yeah, it's like a, it, it's a rom-com, but it's like supposed to be very foul mouth. And yeah, she's the lead in it. Yeah. That sounds, it sounds yeah, perfect. It sounds right up my alley. Well, thanks for the rack. <laughs> Definitely going to check yeah. that out. Just rewatched sleepers, which is, um, you know, I thought, oh, I really thought that, that, uh, the role of mini driver was like, a, that was a very strange, uh, that was a very strange role that she was cast in and i could definitely who, who is she playing i haven't seen it in ages who did she play in that movie she played the only like there's really only one female character um oh gotcha except you know who makes a cameo in that movie uh janice soprano yeah oh wow yeah oh, if you rewatch it you'll <laughs> just be like, wait a minute is that janice and yeah it's um what's her, what's her name uh, like aida totoro toro yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and so mm-hmm. uh that was just funny that i was just watching that but yeah you could definitely see like someone like annabella shore in, in in that role in sleepers so that's a interesting an interesting wreck i gotta check that out yeah definitely Okay, so we're while we're on the subject of Italians in movies and TV shows, how do you feel about non-Italians playing Italians in movies and TV shows? Okay, I have like a list of like acceptable ones okay. <laughs> and a list oh, cool. of ones that I would just say like absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> just why did All right, you bother? Let, let, let's hear this list. Let's hear this list. <laughs> Where do you want me to start? Should I start with my pro or you, uh, we could just Yeah, like- the pro first and then the ones that are absolutely not. Okay, so I'm really like gotta love Sharon Moonstruck. I mm. yeah, I just think that oh. that's you know, she does she kinda she's supposed to be a Brooklyn girl. She does the yeah. kind of Bronx accent, which is like, all right, that's fine. You know, she's from New York. Um <laughs> yeah. at least in the film. And she just, you know, I think that um, she bl- she brings a lot to the role. So that's like one of those instances where I'll just say, you know, let her have it. <laughs> Same thing. Have you ever seen this? Uh, there's a Paul uh, Paul Schrader movie. Um, I don't, I don't want to. I won't want to say the wrong thing in case it's not Paul Schrader. But it's called The Comfort of Strangers. That's um, definitely a Paul Schrader movie. Yeah. Is definitely yeah yeah okay yeah. Um, uh, again, I'm confused. I get, like, get straighter into Palma confused sometimes, especially like late 80s, <laughs> early 90s. But uh, so there's the Christ- Christopher Walken role, and he's not he's not playing right. Italian American. He's playing an actual Italian, and he does the accent, mm-hmm. and he's it's just this like really like dark, <laughs> brutal, violent performance. And I'm just like, wow, like so the cat. Whoever did the casting went out on a limb there, and they really hit. Yeah. Um. <laughs> So, so one of my absolute file under absolutely not um, is uh, Meryl Streep in the Bridges of Madison County. Oh no! Wow. Yeah, <laughs> she's playing an Italian in that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Yes, and she does the accent, and it's very, very oh, it's this, uh, it's this film about like this woman, I think, in the like the rural South, and she has, you know, a really torrid affair in the middle of her like mm. long faithful marriage. She has a really torrid affair with like a. A uh, photographer who's passing through, and she's and she's supposed to be like an Italian woman, and it's just why Meryl <laughs> Streep. I don't know. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I don't I'm, know. People I'm, people say she could do anything, right? I'm I'm actually a Meryl Streep uh, skeptic. I'm not like that, that big on her as a, as an actress. Like I think she's got some good roles, but like yeah, her being I guess like the gold standard of acting. I I. I just see it like I, I think I've mentioned this in previous episodes where yeah. I, I 
it feels like her acting is very telegraphed. Like, I mean, I, I my example is the hours, like when she has that breakdown in the kitchen. And I'm just like, yeah, this is acting. Like that's what it feels like. It's just acting. It doesn't I don't believe it. It doesn't feel natural to me. And then yeah, the accents as well for me. I, I just yeah, it, it feels like to me it's like an actress playing a role yes. rather than me like believing that she actually is that yes. person, you know. Yes, she's very kind of like textbook, like Juilliard, like that kind of acting. And uh, I think ours is all about Nicole Kidman for me, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, even with the aid of the nose. Um, uh, Yeah, so so Meryl Streep is a big offender. Are there any more on that list? I have just, I'll just give you like like the most bizarre one that I can think of. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, Christopher Dennis... And breaking away. Oh, I, another movie I haven't seen. That's another blessing. <laughs> this is a movie. Okay, so Christopher Dennis is—he's actually an Italian. His his real name is like Chris Corelli, and uh, mm. he, he, you know, he's like yeah. an Italian person in real life who's like LARPing as an American. And then <laughs> this this film is about like a down home. It's like about this like you know Midwestern American kid who wants mm. to be an Italian. <laughs> so there's just like so many layers to it uh that i just think are so bizarre um but i love the film and uh yeah i gotta recommend that really really highly i think it's it's uh wait i i, I uh i got his name wrong it's dennis dennis christopher i think it's not christopher dennis it's dennis christopher okay and then his real name is like dennis corelli and then uh dennis quaid is in it and uh, a really yeah. really young daniel stern oh nice yeah i love daniel stern it's a cycling movie right yeah yeah it's about this kid who wants to be he's like really emulates the italian cyclists and he like you know he wants to become a cyclist and so he nice he like adopts this person this italian persona and he renamed he renames his cat to fellini <laughs> and he gets like his parents to like listen to opera and it's just like Jeez. it's just like it's kind of a uh it's like kind of a fun bizarre movie and it has like one of those really great you know like a lot of sporting movies will have like the really great you know, and ending so it's full of tension and drama. Beautiful. Um, you should check it out. So that's that's my spiel about about you know people non Italians playing <laughs> playing Italian. Okay, well, can I just throw one more name at you, and I want to hear your opinion on it. Um, Absolutely, Victor Argo. Uh huh. Do you, does he ring any bells? No. Oh, okay. Well, he's usually a Scorsese. Um, regular you know he was one of the the apostles in in last temptation of christ he's usually playing like italian gangsters but he's actually i think um puerto rican that's like um you know uh, same thing with like scorsese using harvey kite's house all right and, like, he's not for so long where it's like wait a minute like this guy's <laughs> on a polish th- yeah. i know well he passes yeah he can pass um yeah it- so i mean if scorsese if scorsese's got confidence in someone i'll generally give him a pass too perfect yeah same, same thing with uh coppola you know we're supposed to believe james Kahn's an italian right. we're supposed to believe andy garcia's an italian <laughs> yeah yeah in, in all right <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because this this topic has kind of come up recently because of um, uh, people actually thought, uh, well, Bottoms came out uh, with Rachel Sennett. And a lot of people thought that Rachel Sennett was um, was Jewish, but she's actually Italian, Catholic Italian. And um, and people were saying, well, no, you know, like that's actually 
that's fine. Like Jewish people playing Italians and vice versa, you know, like that's actually an okay thing. Yeah. (laughs) So it's just interesting that that came up. Yeah, I heard about that. I just think it's funny. You know, that's why like my absolutely not would be like someone like Meryl Streep, where it's like, it's pretty straightforward that she's neither Jewish nor Italian, (laughs) nor like any kind of Mediterranean person. Right. It's like, like, I totally had a left field. So, yeah. All right. Mm. Okay. So, um, my next question is pretty basic. It's, um, uh, do you like yellow and purple? Yeah. Oh, the combination of the colors. Um, it can be either or. It's actually a, a foreshadowing for our movie later. <laughs> it it comes up later on, uh, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, oh hmm. yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do oh, like yellow and purple. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. So my next question <laughs> is going to be, um, what was the most recent first time watch that you saw that was like five stars for you? Oh, that's such a great question. Mm. You know, ever since we started, um, ever since uh, Carlo kind of like approached me about this uh, podcast, I just, I've just been uh, really uh, going on a huge Altman kick, right? Nice. Because uh, Carlo introduced me to OC and Stigs, and I was just like, I, you know, I had a, I felt like I had a pretty solid grasp on Altman up till that point and then when I watched that I was like oh my god like I I don't know really anything past uh you know uh, whatever it is 1979 and so I started watching some of his more recent stuff you know uh and by that I mean like the films that he made in the 90s um nice so I rewatched like Player and um Gosford Park and then um I went sort of back into the catalog and I'm there were some some from really really major films that I'd missed and I missed The Long Goodbye which I watched or rewatched and I was just blown away by the wow. Elliot Gould performance and yeah. he had his birthday yeah. recently too happy birthday Elliot Gould happy birthday Elliot Gould I was so happy when I found out that he was still alive I was like yeah. oh, <laughs> thank god we still we still have Elliot Gould yeah <laughs> I mean what a brilliant what a brilliant film yeah uh, I mean, we might be getting a little ahead of ourselves, but yeah, that's definitely um, one of my top Altmans uh, is Long Goodbye. I definitely want to hear you talk about that. I mean, yeah. if I had to choose uh, if I had to choose a non-Altman that I'd seen recently, I, gosh, I don't know what to say because it's so, it's kind of like formulaic at this point. I mean, if you have a, if you have a Criterion app, you're kind of just like watching along with the monthly themes. So I rewatched right. all their like Euro thrillers and I really, really loved the La Piscine, the swimming pool, which was the, Oh movie. yeah. Yeah. So I rewatched that one and Les Diaboliques, which are like some of these French films that I'd like watched in my early twenties, like 10, 15 years ago. And I was just like, wow, it's a great, it's a great movie to rewatch. Um, so that's you know to kind of just move away from Altman for a minute, right? Um, yeah, this, this is a weird thing too with La Piscine. Is it like um, is it in French or in English? <laughs> like the version that they have on on Criterion. I'm just curious. Um, I'm pretty sure it's in French. Okay, yeah, because uh, the yeah, version just... I've seen it's in it's in it has a French part at the beginning and then it be- ends up being in English for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the copy that's I, like on Max. I can't imagine why. Yeah, it's weird how like Max and so interesting air titles. Yeah, but then yeah, they have some alternate versions of of the movies too. Yeah, I, I you know what the reason I know that I definitely watched it in French is because it's always interesting to watch Jane Birkin speak French. She's kind mm. of like this quintessential French actress, like 
from you know the 60s and 70s and you know the partner of Serge Gainsbourg who's like the cool French guy and it's she really uh never really got I don't I feel like she never really got a feel for the language you know (laughs) so she's speaking it with like a very very I'm a I I should just I guess I should just close that I'm a French teacher oh yeah I was gonna ask that oh cool yeah so that's how I that's how I make my living is by uh teaching people French so that's why whenever I'm you know watching a non-native person speak French is that's sort of critical so <laughs> oh man yeah well um maybe I can get some pointers from you because I'm actually learning French as well but yeah I'm terrible at speaking it <laughs> are you do you speak Italian uh no I don't speak Italian either <laughs> even though my Italian. name is Italian <laughs> so you just your name that's like the one thing you say in Italian yeah that's okay. it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, that, I guess that it's a good way to kind of get to know, um, like, what is your criteria for like, movies that float your boat? Like what give us like an idea of your taste in film? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, there's gotta be like some kind of coherence to the film that I'm watching. Do you know what I mean? Like I come yeah. from a background of literary analysis, so I'm very, very invested in like not not even necessarily in like plot, right? Or like in you know traditionally literary elements, like reading or like watching it for like this like the screenplay or something. But it does have to be sort of cohesive, even if it's mostly image. Like I, I really, really love Tarkovsky. You know, films. Like <laughs> it's that. funny that you use him as an it's example. Like yeah, because. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's visually cohesive. Yes, yes. So that's what I mean. Like, even mm. if it isn't necessarily, you know, I, I can't, I get, um, the reason I to, like turn a lot of movies off is just because I, they'll be so um, disjointed. Mm. Or at some point, you know, that it just move between, um, between different um, modes, I feel. And I really like, I want to watch a film for that kind of cinematic experience of just like, being immersed in either an auteur's like the world that they created or an idea that they had and so it really is for me uh just an experience of like being immersed in someone's vision kind of like being in a novel that's and that's another reason why it's like harder and harder to find films that i like that are contemporary because they seem like the products of studios so often where it's like there's so many points of view being integrated that i just my you know my my attention span gets lost gotcha yeah, and I mean, it is, it's going to be fascinating to apply this to the, the double feature that we have coming up because, I don't know, yeah, Altman definitely has a style that you wouldn't call literary. And then with Tarkovsky, I don't know, if, have you ever read his book, um, uh, Sculpting in Time? No, I haven't. Oh, it's it's brilliant. It's one of like the greatest like directors on cinema books. Like It's up there with like Notes on Cinematography by Brisson and... Um, Scorsese on Scorsese I would even say like these are like my top like film books by film directors uh but yeah one of the things that he talks about in in sculpting time is actually how he's really trying to separate cinema from all the other art forms that he's like he doesn't want cinema to just be like film theater or just like adaptations of literature even though ironically like most of his films are actually based on books you know but uh, his best movie, I well, the one I my favorite is is Mirror, which you know is totally original, 
And it, it's the one where, yeah, it does jump around a lot in time and also in, like, I guess, feeling. There's not that much continuity in, in terms of narrative. But yeah, it, it's a gorgeous work. And that was one of the things that he was trying to do. I and mean, it's something that I really admire is that goal of like trying to separate cinema from the other art forms instead of just considering it to be an amalgam of, of all the other art forms. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Altman also makes some points about that just in terms of like it, it being an immersive experience where, you know, you're not reading a book where you can just sort of put it down and come back to it. You know, if you're a filmmaker, you have to like sort of gain your audience's trust for those, whatever it is, two hours or two and a half hours. Right. Sort of, you know, like orchestrate an experience and it's not it's not really like any other art form certainly yeah Uh, i mean just another recent event that happened i don't know if either of you have you seen the trailer for ferrari no but i have seen you know the um some of the promotional photos for it i'm really excited about it the trailer is incredible like i i mean talking about like an old master like michael mann i feel as he's getting older like he's making more kind of impressionistic films and the trailer feels like it like there's almost no dialogue until like the very end of the trailer it's all just like engines revving throughout the entire trailer and i don't know who penelope cruz is playing but she might actually also be playing an italian it seems like she's the wife of enzo ferrari in the movie (laughs) i'm not quite sure so yeah they got a spaniard to play an italian life is penelope cruz like she can do whatever she wants right (laughs) (laughs) yeah um all right so my next question is actually about a recent release i wonder if you've seen this movie um it also has an italian in it, i think um past lives no and i've heard amazing things about it oh okay all right <laughs> i was uh i was hoping yeah so maybe we'll have you come back and uh or just like send us a message and we'd like to hear what you uh you think of this movie cool. yeah that'd be great i'll follow up i'll do some homework <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, the the actor I was thinking of is John uh, Magaro, I think is his name. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him. No. Um. Yeah he he had one of the worst performances I've seen like in recent years. <laughs> I'd say, and he's not a terrible actor, but it's just man, they they put him like they set him up to fail in um uh the the Sopranos movie, the uh, Many Saints of Newark. He plays the the younger um Sill. Uh, I see. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's such a bad performance. Yeah, that was uh, one I didn't. I didn't catch many Saints of Newark. I, uh, I everybody nah. around me was really. <laughs> everybody just panned it. So no, nah, yeah, you're you're good. You're not missing out on anything. I'll get around it, to it. I got. I have to. You know what I mean? It's like I, I have to watch it eventually. It's... Just more homework. Dang. More homework. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, so um, I my last two questions are kind of literary. So one is, um, what is your favorite literary adaptation, like a movie that was adapted into a film? Oh, what a great! That's a, such a great question. Gosh, you know, I really want to say the first thing that comes to mind is going to be Francis Ford Cop- Coppola's Dracula. Oh wow! Yeah, just Ooh. gosh, just on the level of like you know when we talk about cinema just being an entirely different thing, it's like you have the just the way that the production design and the costumes all come together in that film. It just you know I I feel like it's 
just a cinematic experience on a, on a totally different level. And that's not, and that's not to, you know, knock Bram Stoker or anything, but right. it, it is just one of those movies. That's uh whenever I see stills from the film, they're like paintings. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's another actual blind spot for me. So, and now that we're approaching spooky season, maybe Steve, that's a movie that we can watch. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, um, Christina, have you been to the um, Museum of Moving Image in Queens? No, I haven't. Uh, well, you're in for a treat. If you go there, um, they have the actual armor that Dracula wears, the red armor that's so iconic. The Gary Oldman? Yeah. <laughs> the Gary Oldman armor. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's there. I gotta check it out. It's so hard, you know. I know it sounds like I'm close to, to Queens because I'm in New Jersey, but it's so hard to get out to Queens. Oh yeah, you gotta take like two tunnels or like a bridge <laughs> in a tunnel, and then you know, by the time you get out there, it's like yeah. I mean, I lived in Queens, and it was hard to get to New Jersey. I remember um, there was like a a, a place in Hoboken, like I guess they specialized in like uh, beverages and stuff. And it was the only place where you could get a root beer keg. Like you couldn't get it anywhere in New York City, but you had to go to Hoboken to get it. And <laughs> I had to make that trip. A root beer keg? Yeah, a root beer keg. <laughs> like a half barrel nice, or like dude. a sixth? How much root beer are we talking? <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it was a tiny barrel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's just root beer, like cream soda. I've got I have so many questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was root beer. Yeah. We we had it at work basically. So it it was one guy's job to like go there. And one day I was just like, yeah, I want to go with you. Like, let's go. To, let's take a day trip to Hoboken to pick up this barrel. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, a, you know, it's like a trek. Yeah. That's why most uh, bridge and tunnel people only come on weekends. Right. Yeah, if then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and my last question is, uh, have you ever read Edward? Levy or Levy? I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name. No, I don't know familiar. Ah, uh, he's a French author. Um, he's one of my favorites, actually. Um, he uh he wrote a book called uh Ooves, mm-hmm. Ooves, <laughs> How am I pronounce? Am I how's my pronunciation? Well, it's just it's so funny because I just did. I had my um first day first day back of classes today, and I just did this particular diphthong, the O E, which are like. They're like connected together, you know. When we see it written out as like the O and E are like kissing, it's yeah. gonna be pronounced just like the E in French, which is uh. So it's of. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's like you're gotcha. being kicked in the stomach. That's what I tell my oh. Yeah, like imagine someone's <laughs> kicking you in the stomach. <laughs> That's great advice. <laughs> yeah, he, he's an incredible author. I, I I would suggest checking out his work because that um that one I'll just call it by its English uh, title works um. It's actually just a list of all these projects that he wanted to do, but he never did for some reason. And um, yeah, he has he has a book called Auto Portrait, which is um, just like random memories from his life that he he wrote down. And they're like uh, he, he writes in a very like fragmented like way. And it's just little vignettes. And I mean, one of his most well known works and and it's kind of. Um, notorious is uh, suicide, uh, which he basically it was the last thing he did. Like he submitted it to his publisher, and then he committed suicide. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really a cry. I guess a cry for help. Um, that went unheeded. Yeah, he, but he yeah he was he was a really talented guy. Like he uh I think he he also was a filmmaker, and he um 
he he took photographs uh one of his projects was actually just like taking photos of different cities in um in america that shared names with european cities like you know paris texas that kind of thing uh-huh. um yeah so that was one of his projects that he did but yeah he 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 was one of a kind yeah i mean Ooves is a great place to start um i feel so yeah edward levey i think is how it's pronounced all right it's great getting a lot of great wrecks tonight sweet all right steve do you have any appetizers for us tonight yeah let me just get in a quick corrections and retractions corrections and retractions so um on the last step we were getting pretty deep into barbenheimer yeah and i am curious to hear what christina thinks of the whole bar barbenheimer <laughs> yeah me uh, too uh, experience but just to get the correction and retraction in when we were talking about oppenheimer we were recalling um hartnett's character uh, ernest lawrence yeah and we said that there's something named after him and we said it was lawrence livermore lab- labs yeah and that is you know he is the lawrence associated with that one but that's in livermore which is a different town the one in berkeley is the lawrence berkeley national laboratory gotcha lbnl so slightly different. So I had to get in that correction to make sure we're all on the up and up here. Um, so yeah, Christina, do you have any just like quick takes on Oppenheimer or, or Barbie or Barbenheimer? This is, I'm going to be, I'm going to disappoint you guys because I really, um, my tendency is just to like wait for the hype to die down really. Oh <laughs> yeah. Before I, before I dig in. So I'll probably watch these movies in five years. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Perfect. I recommend it actually. That's sort of yeah. disappointing, but it's like, how do I know if this is worth my time? How right. How do I know that I'm not just not being sold this experience and it's not going to stand the test of time? Wow. That's a, That's how you know that you're a bot. Because like, <laughs> I feel like all of us dumb humans, we all got swept up in the... <laughs> In the marketing and our advertising industrial complex, and we're all like, let's go out and see these two movies. And I feel like Christina, that's the way to go. Way to go. Like you did it. <laughs> this is it's just my algorithm. It's just it it, it rules me. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It says you're not a slave to, you know, periods in time, you know. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. No, AI is just doesn't just yeah. I don't have to worry about mortality or anything like that. So do you have any more um, appetizers, Steve? Um, only if you want to keep it continue, I can talk about something. But um, yeah. Uh, like, well, what is it? I was going to talk about um, some Emma Seligman shorts that I saw recently. Yeah, go ahead. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get hyped up to watch Bottoms. I haven't quite got there yet. Seems like the raunchy team comedy is back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Late 90s, early 2000s humor. It's not cringy anymore. It's cool again. So, and um, and bottom seems like it's kind of trying to nail that. Um, and so I'm excited. And so to prep, uh, I saw um, one of our friends of the pod and past guests, I think it was Kay. She had seen on, and I saw it on her letterbox, a, a short called Void. I don't know, Carlo, if, if you're familiar with this Void. It's one of yeah. I saw the the thumbnail for it. It had a really compelling image. It was like a spotlight on a on a woman's face. Yeah, it's like a it's it's a yeah it's a young girl and it's one of Emma Seligman's kind of first shorts or you mm. know, early shorts, let's say. And and I found it. It's on YouTube, so you can just like watch it. Nice. And and it's a little 
you know, it's a little embarrassing, but it kind of it tackles masturbation. And <laughs> okay. It, and it's, um, but it's like it, it, the way it's done, it just kind of, I don't know, it's very creative, inventive. And it kind of gives you all the like wiggles and jiggles and uncomfortable feelings that you kind of naturally would feel watching something that's about this topic. Um, but it's done really well, I thought. And so it's a very talented uh, filmmaker, no doubt. And of course, you know, she, she later worked with Rachel Sinnott and Shiva Baby. Yeah, which you're a big fan of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and um, I actually saw the short for, for, for it also on YouTube, but I think it got oh, wow. taken down. So oh, I don't know if the short's still available, but obviously the movie's great. And yeah, so I'm excited for Bottoms. Yeah, I, it's it's on my list. I mean, you know, it, it just got a wide release. So yeah, I'll probably watch it this Labor Day weekend. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, I have one kind of outlier and then uh, I, I'm going to get into Carlos Cannon. So this one outlier is actually like one of the most um, pleasant surprises I've had in a movie theater this year, uh, which is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. <laughs> what <laughs> yeah it's fantastic man i really loved it cool <laughs> yeah okay. i was just i i wasn't expecting much um you know uh the trailers <laughs> did not sell me on the movie mm. uh but you know i i grew up with teenage mutant ninja turtles <laughs> I, i've always been a fan of, of that franchise you know i even read the comic books but sure. uh yeah uh, the the past few movies have been terrible it's it's just been really bad so it was it was kind of a course correction, I feel, with this, you know, um, where, you know, th they made a big deal about how, like, they're actual teenagers. And then, you know, they have teenagers doing the voices for it. And, yeah, it's a really charming movie. And the, the thing that really sold me on it was the Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score. Oh. It's just incredible. It's, it, I mean, they have another score coming up this year. It's going to be for um Killer. The yeah. new David Fincher movie, so I'm excited for that. It looks awesome. As well, yeah, yeah, but you know, it's just incredible how the score actually. It reminds me a lot of two like very different things. One is um, uh, the the one half of Daft Punk, uh, Thomas, uh, mm -hmm. Thomas, uh, how do you pronounce his last name? Bangalter. Oh um, yeah, he uh, he he does a lot of scores for Gaspar Noe. And one of the ones that he did for Irreversible, it actually sounds like that score a little bit. Um, and then the other is, uh, I don't know if you guys know this band called Junip. No. No. Uh, yeah, it, it's like, it was an indie band in like the mid 2000s, uh, the noughties. And uh, like, uh, I don't know if they're still around, but uh, Jose Gonzalez is like the front man of it. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, he has a song uh, called uh, Howl. And it also sounds like that. So it's imagine those two things like being bashed together and then like fed through a nine inch nails uh, filter. And <laughs> that's what the soundtrack sounds Dang. like. It's incredible. Beautiful. Yeah. So that, that was the biggest selling point for me. And yeah, it, it's just a fun movie. It really was. What's your, um, who's your favorite turtle? Ooh, it's kind of evolved. That's a good question. Um, it's evolved. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when I was a kid, I was always the Raphael guy. Uh, um, but I, I deep down, I knew it's I cool was but rude. Yeah, I was Donatello. <laughs> like, oh yeah, 
yeah Smart and guy. i've come to terms with that yeah that i i'm i'm the donatello of, of the ninja turtles how about you guys uh, i just uh noticed that you didn't ask me how i feel about turtles playing italians <laughs> oh yeah how do you feel about that and pizza <laughs> i feel great about it it's yeah. you know when when i because I, I grew up with the ninja turtles and i always had to you know when you were playing with your friends or whatever i always had to be april because there weren't oh, any girl turtles yeah yeah <laughs> um but i think i really liked leonardo um because i liked blue and yeah and i thought i really respected his sword you know he was uh, his weapon oh yeah he has the best weapon i mean bar none i feel oh for sure uh, what about the nunchucks yeah i was gonna say <laughs> either that or the nunchucks you know you know yeah. it's not the trident and you know it's not the Sick. The side blades, the poor side yeah, blades. I, 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 yeah, I feel like Raphael's real weapon was his humor. You know his, I mean? yeah, his attitude. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and his attitude. Yeah, that's really what <laughs> more I admired. And yeah, it's just so strange because, you know, the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, I think I mentioned this to you, Steve, before that when I saw it, I actually saw it in a movie theater that was like next to an open sewer. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Was that in yeah. Queens? Was that uh, no, I wish it was. No, it was in the Philippines. Oh. Uh there, there's actually a place called Delta and it's it's an open sewer. Like it it's like <laughs> it's a major <laughs> intersection in, in Manila. And it yeah, there's an open sewer there. And the other weird thing too is there's also a pizza hut there. So there's oh. a movie theater and a pizza. I mean, I'm sure they're not there anymore, but like when I was a kid, <laughs> that was a thing. So we went to grab pizza after next to an open sewer after oh, seeing man. the first Ninja Turtles. What a great memory. My gosh. Yeah. It's like one of those kind of um, synesthesia kind of experiences, you know, where mm. it's like reality and and cinema is like melding together. And, um, and yeah, it's just so strange looking back at the first movie like that it was a, a golden harvest production which you know is known for being a martial arts studio yeah. from hong kong um so yeah and then obviously uh, jim henson's work is is incredible i think that was the last thing he worked on before he passed too really so, yeah it was just wow. a movie so yeah but yeah this new one it's incredible like it, it, i i mean i highly recommend it for both of you to to check it out like it it's such good natured and um yeah it, we, we were talking about bottoms like uh what a crazy year it's been for um uh i'm gonna mispronounce her name is it io idibiri is that how you pronounce her name <laughs> yes i think that's correct and we apologize yeah <laughs> everybody will be pronouncing her name in bottoms she's in the bear um which had its second season this year so yeah she's having quite the year mm -hmm, no doubt all right so yeah let's get into carlos canon as i forgot to mention to you christina this is like a regular <laughs> segment on our show where basically i mention movies that are um first time watches for me or like something that i i rewatched and kind of changed my opinion on and it it belongs in my canon oh that can't c-a-n-o-n <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah we, we it's a play on the <laughs> canon so um so yeah i had like an incredible run recently and it was four well i kind of jumping ahead a little bit but uh, I saw four different things in one weekend where I was just like, man, all of these belong in Carlos canon. And um, it started with um, Felix the Cat, 
Uh, and it's a specific run of Felix the Cat too. It was the the run that it had in 1958 to 1959. Like that's my favorite run of Felix the Cat. It's just <laughs> yeah, it's so incredible. Like uh, I don't know. It, firstly, it has the iconic like Felix the Cat kind of theme theme tune, which is great. Um, but also, yeah, the animation style is brilliant mm-hmm. in that. And you know, it's just I I feel like I took it for granted when I was a kid. But yeah, it really feeds into, you know, my sensibility of just like it being surreal. And um, this run in particular, it actually has like a continuous storyline from episode to episode. So it's like all about Felix's initial encounter with um, uh, the professor and like how the professor just is so envious of his magic bag of tricks. And I just love how the magic bag of tricks is like a Louis Vuitton bag. Uh, is it really the way yeah yeah. or like there's definitely one of those designers that adapted that design yeah i see it It has like a pattern yeah 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 um so yeah felix the cat incredible and you know i i feel like it's it's worthy of carlos canon even though it was made for tv i mean it started in cinema actually it's crazy how felix the cat like traces back to silent uh, cinema like mm-hmm. the first F- Felix the Cat cartoons were silent and you know it was a comic strip before that yeah. Um, but yeah it's it's had some crazy runs and reboots over the years like a lot of people hate the Felix the Cat the movie that came out in the late 80s and I'm I'm yeah I'm curious to to visit that one you yeah. know because uh, yeah the the hate seems like legit about it's like how surreal it is oh yeah um, yeah and then uh, another movie I saw, I'm, I'm not going in the right order, but the, another one that I saw for the first time ever, and I've always been a fan of theirs, The Archers. Um, so that's uh, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, man, they had such an incredible run uh, in the third, uh, in the 40s and 50s, I want to say. And um, yeah, I saw one of their main kind of heavy hitters, which is um, uh, A Matter of Life and Death. Have either of you seen this? no oh man it's incredible it's one of those films that has this reputation of being a classic and then when you Mm -hmm. see it you're like yeah you know why like it's just it really is one of those films it's just something about uh the archers like they they knew they had some sort of understanding of cinema that i don't think anybody else had at that time like they knew that it was there's a certain magic that you can tap into and um you know it wasn't it, the movie's partly in black and white and then mostly in color but that wasn't really a thing at that time like this was in the mid 40s so most films were still in black and white around that time and i remember the uh, i read like um a story about it where they actually had to stop production because they weren't producing enough technicolor film for them to shoot it and yeah but it's just incredible like the 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 movies every movie that i've seen by them just has this this quality to it where it's like you just know nobody else was making movies like they were during that time and you know that's why there's such a big influence on scorsese cool definitely would put red red the red shoes in my yes top 10 so i'm gonna check this film out absolutely recommending yeah yeah it looks like it's it's on internet archive yep which is cool. and i think it's on i mean criterion released it so oh, cool. i'm sure it's probably on the criterion channel as well Wait. um 
And yeah, this is kind of cheat because the next two movies I saw are the next two movies we're we're gonna be discussing. So amazing. Uh, yeah. So shall we get into the main course? Yes. It's time for the main course. Oh yeah, Carlo. So yeah, why why don't you lead us in? This is a pretty exciting main course. It's pretty tasty. Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So we, we have a double feature of two Robert Altman films. But before we dive into the movies, I, I really just want to get into Robert Altman first. And Christina, since you're our guest, uh, I want to hear like what was your first encounter with Altman? And uh, yeah, tell us about that. I mean, it was almost sort of, I didn't realize I was watching a Robert, a Robert Altman film at the time. You know, when Gosford Park came out, that was like my first encounter. I think a lot of people's first encounter with him, or a lot of, I mean, just a lot of people in our generation. Um, and it obviously was his first Oscar win too, so it kind of propelled him to this status that he he hadn't had wow. in the previous fifty years, you know, or so that he'd been making movies. Um, but around about ten years ago was the first time that I watched three three women, and mm-hmm. it was just the kind of film that stuck with me and that I'd been thinking about and kind of meditating on, just like for the past decade. And so when you guys invited me to kind of talk, like talk about a film that was just, that's just the first thing that popped to my mind. Gotcha. Totally. And Steve, how about you? What was your first encounter with, with Altman? Oddly enough, I've am super ignorant to Altman. So the first wow. Altman I've ever seen was OC and Stiggs. If you can <laughs> believe it. So I'm, wow. I'm, I'm coming in clear mind, clean slate, and kind of discovering all of his, uh, you know, his his stylings, you know, that you know that what he's known for. As we kind of go through these, like, so I've so I've now seen three. I've only seen three Altmans. I've seen O.C. and Stiggs, Three Women, and the the Player in that order. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And so yeah, I'm gonna learn a lot about Altman in this app, and we're gonna discover all the little patterns and whatnot together. This is great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and I just want to say with me, like, I, I also, when I first saw my first Altman, I did not know it was by Robert Altman. The first movie I saw of his was Popeye. So oh, I, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah. Popeye. <laughs> yeah, edit. Popeye was the first. Popeye was Altman? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was with Robin okay. Williams and Shelley Duvall. All right. I have, okay. Corrections and retractions. My first Altman was Popeye also, but I, yeah. I <laughs> yes, don't so we're yes. all the same. Dude, all three all of us. The, yeah, all three of us <laughs> first saw Popeye and had no idea. <laughs> it was Robert Altman. Oh, man. Yeah. Did you guys know that that town that where they filmed it, like they kept the sets? Yeah, so it's in you, Malta, right? Yeah. So yeah. you go there, the cool. town, the seaside town of Popeye is still there. That's insane. That's yeah, awesome. it's incredible. So, yeah, I mean... I think this is going to help us as we dive into the movies. But yeah, l- let me ask you, Christina, how would you like describe Altman's style? Like what what is his hallmarks as a director or an auteur? It changed so much over the years. You know, um, when you look at like this, I, I don't want to say like his breakthrough stuff because he was directing. I mean, he was making films and 
uh, or, you know, directing TV episodes in, in, in the right. 50s and 60s. But some of his more like breakthrough stuff in the 1970s when he started really like gaining the confidence of studios and being able to make things that reflected his own vision. It's so different than what you're seeing in the 90s. But I would say, you know, probably the way he would describe himself is just like really, really comfortable working with an ensemble cast. Right. And I think that's what he really wants to do or like the direction that he wants to take cinema which is like kind of taking it uh out of the hands of like a screenplay and like putting it in the hands of the actors yeah and yeah and just trying to like trying to kind of make that ensemble like give it its own life yeah and i don't think we we've really seen like a filmmaker that um relies more on an ensemble cast um before he he came along other than maybe like dw griffith you know like we're so used to having like that single protagonist and the typical thing of like they they want something and you know they're trying to do whatever they can to achieve that but with altman that's all thrown out the window because everybody's a main character in his films even if you have a small part like um Mm. uh there's still their own story going on there you know um but yeah the the it's funny how he he evolves, but then there's certain things that he carries through from film to film. Like, um, yeah, you're right in in terms of like not relying on a screenplay. Um, there's there's this intuitive thing that he does, and it's like he just relies on his instincts. And uh, I would compare like his style to be like kind of jazzy, like free and easy. And um, you know, there there'd be he'd do these zooms. I, I think that's the most iconic thing of an Altman shot is like the zoom where you're basically finding the character. Sometimes you're hearing them speak before the zoom even finds them. Mm-hmm. And um, he actually like created his own um, uh, like way of recording sound where it would pick up everybody who's speaking. So like he was able to like focus on something and, you know, he he often like allowed actors to. That's one of the things that he says because they were saying like, hey, yeah, how do you get like such great performances out of your actors? And he's saying that uh, I make them do the work. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they're the ones who are like building their characters. So they're they're very active in in that sense. Yeah, I was thinking about that, actually, when we were uh, having technical difficulties earlier, that was kind of like a very sort of altman thing to happen it's for just one of our tracks to just drop off right i mean and he wouldn't have even cared you know like if he were directing this podcast he would have been like well you you know the audience doesn't need to hear every single word right because that's like kind of the altman thing it's so frustrating for us as an audience to be like what that person say when he's like well it's not really that important right it's just like all of these tracks that are layered on top of each other that would be so insane to listen to a podcast where, like, you have to, your mind has to fill in what the other person's saying because the <laughs> audio's dropping out. Yeah, well, especially if it were like me, like the guy, like you can't hear the guests, and it's like, well, that's you know, the, that's the mystery. That's the point yeah. of this podcast is that we don't know what the guest <laughs> is saying or what they would say. <laughs> yeah, that would be a very postmodern type of podcast. I think where you're interviewing an invisible guest. Yes. Uh, yes. A silent guest who's just keeping keeping her silence. I do have things to say about these movies, but with yeah, <laughs> you have to fill in the blanks. Exactly. Um, yeah, and it's funny because uh, as much as like we're talking about these approaches that he's doing, he's not really an experimental 
filmmaker, I would say, like, because there, there's always something grounded in terms of, uh, I guess there's a humanity to it. But, you know, the, the pushback to that is some people say that he's actually a very cynical uh, filmmaker and that, like, hurts the films. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the two films we're going to discuss, we can we can kind of parse that through the characters. Uh, but yeah, it's it's he really was one of a kind filmmaker like, uh, the, you know, he, he's often asked, I guess, like most filmmakers are like who his influences are. And he said, I think in one interview that his biggest influences are are filmmakers uh, who who do things that he doesn't want to do. <laughs> that's that's where more he draws his inspiration from. But, you know, you can definitely see like he's mentioned Kurosawa, Bergman and Fellini. Yeah, as as influences and yeah, those are like his big three, right? Yeah, the constantly moving camera, you know, the kind of prowling, finding the person. Um, that's definitely yeah there and yeah, um, it's it's really more about a vibe, you know, it's more about atmosphere and the performances rather than the script, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he's also kind of drawn to a. What would you say Christina is like a typical Altman character? Like, how would you describe characters in his movies? I feel like he would it just, I feel like he gets attached to these actors that develop their own characters. So, mm. like, you see, like, the repetition of, like, Elliot Gould or, like, Shelley Duvall, you know, where it's sort of like the characters themselves are almost incidental. And it's the, it's the sort of actors that he brings on that create the characters. Right. Yeah. And they, they also tend to kind of be, I feel like, slightly on the outside of society. Mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah, the, he loves like quirky and not in like the kind of twee way, but like quirky characters, you know, um, and they're they're all very memorable. Like, that's the thing. We we talk about these ensembles and yeah, you remember all of them. I, I think the first Altman movie I actually saw that I I was aware that he was the director was um was shortcuts mm-hmm. and you know yeah. it's still one of my favorites and you remember everybody in that movie there's no uh actor in it that you forget you know like they're all given that moment i mean it's a three-hour movie but uh within that time it's just like yeah i don't know i can't remember how many like actors are actually in the movie but yeah they all have their moment mm-hmm. it's incredible yeah and yeah, uh, another thing about the camera work I should mention too is that he often likes to shoot in like the cinemascope aspect ratio. So it's the very wide, like uh, two, three, five is to one aspect ratio. And I think that's very fitting for him because it's like, you know, how egalitarian he is. So it, he's able to fit a lot of characters, mm. you know, in one frame. Like uh, one scene that is really remarkable for me. And um, if you guys haven't seen it, like it's on YouTube. Um, uh, have, have either of you seen Nashville? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my favorite scene in Nashville is the I'm easy scene. You know what I'm talking about, Christina? Is that uh, what part, is it, that's not the ending, is it? No, no, no. It's it's Keith Carradine when he performs. Yeah. Okay. I'm easy. Yeah. Okay. And it's so hard to find that version, by the way, of, of I'm easy where he's just playing acoustically like because it became a hit song for him. Like he. Keith Carradine is also another Altman player. You know, he basically, mm-hmm. you know, was a frequent collaborator and became a star through Altman films. But um, uh, yeah, it, 
it launched his music career. <laughs> it was just like such a big hit. And um, but the versions that you can get like on streaming and vinyl are like these things that they added all these instrumentation in. And it just doesn't sound as good as the Nashville the version that's in the movie. Because even if you buy the Nashville soundtrack, uh, it's it's that production version. It's not the yeah. the live version that he plays. But the beauty of that that sequence is uh, he's playing the song called "I'm Easy," and then he's kind of flirted with a few of the women in um like the characters in in the movie, and they all think that the song is for them. And just the way the the camera moves around and like it's zooming in on like Geraldine Chaplin or. Shelly Duvall and they all or Lily Tomlin like they all think that the song is about them <laughs> but you know he's just singing that that song and he's he's playing on that you know and yeah that's that's really like I think a trademark like Altman shot or sequence is is the I'm easy scene in in Nashville cool nice. yeah a lot yeah a lot of that music is just so fun because it's kind of like raw and extemporaneous and then it's you wonder if they could even reproduce it that way you know right right yeah i mean that is the incredible thing about life. and i haven't seen it in a long time but you know the music really sticks with you and i'm not even a fan of of that music scene in particular but well neither was he you know he was just <laughs> oh he wasn't like, okay. no he kind, of, he kind of was just like you know he got some criticism like oh, these songs aren't particularly very good you know from like the, <laughs> the from like the national music scene and he was kind of oh like, gotcha. like that's my point like your music's not good you know <laughs> like he was sort of like this is a, i'm holding up a mirror to how you guys sound to me uh but some of those songs are like especially the, i love that that final scene when they're mm. you know after they after the uh, what what was her name like Barbara Jean or whatever gets shot and then they yeah and then they all kind of come together to sing this final song. <laughs> it's really yeah. it really does bring me back to what you mentioned, Carlo, about his cynicism about all this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't think he he's really like um deterring any of the critics from <laughs> that, that sure. idea that he's, he's cynical um but yeah it's also fascinating with him that like he you know he's associated with with a lot of the american filmmakers who broke out in the 70s like the movie brats but he was a lot older yeah like yeah when he was was in his 50s when he broke out i think yeah (laughs) yeah yeah when he was born movies were still silent he was born Mm -hmm. in 1925 um and yeah like i think when he broke through with mash which is still his biggest hit um like uh yeah he was 45 when mash came out oh wow so yeah it it took him a while i mean you know he had had been making films for a long time and you know was in like production well mainly tv movies and like you know um uh he i think he directed some episodes of uh alfred hitchcock presents and stuff like that yeah Uh, um it it seems like he'd also been you know, self-sabotaging a lot, maybe not deliberately, <laughs> but he, it seems like his entire life, he did have a pretty uncompromising. Vision. Yeah. And yeah, we'll, we'll get into that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So by the time uh, we get to our first movie, three women, he was actually 52 in 1977. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's, fa- it's fascinating. And he was on his third marriage, right? Third and marriage. He, oh, yeah. Wow. And he has all of these children with, you know three different women i think it was like a child of his first wife and then two of the second and um and the um inspiration for three women kind of came from oh uh his 
third, his current or third wife, or, you know, the wife that he was married to for the longest amount of time, uh, who had was hospitalized. Man, I had no idea because I, I, I thought this movie came from a dream that he had. Exactly. That's the story that I heard. It, it seems like it was kind of a stress dream. Oh, wow. gotcha. I had no idea that he that that weird like connection that he had had three wives and then he made a movie called Three Women, stemming from three different marriages. Man, um, none named Millie though. Yeah, no, <laughs> they were all, and they were all named Millie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he had this dream, and you know, it, it's it's a weird thing too with that. Um, so this came out in 1977, but what led to it becoming a film was this whole thing of just like he he went up to 20th Century Fox and told them this idea without presenting a script. And they were like, well, how much does it cost? And he's like, one point five million. And it's like they just greenlit it. That's and amazing. yeah, the movie was made. But, you know, like we all know that 1977 was like basically the end of an era for, you know, making artistic studio films because that's the Star Wars year and any director who happened to have a film that year <laughs> was just basically it was over for them you know they never quite recovered yeah so we're, we're really lucky that we got this yeah because, uh, uh, I mean for a lot of reasons so what how was your first encounter with this movie Christina where did you first see it and how did you hear about it you know, I was living in Los Angeles and it was in, I was actually on Netflix at the time. So it was kind of like oh. part, part of my watch list. Um, and uh, I was uh, writing my dissertation and I've been reading a lot of uh, this uh, kind of 20th century uh, French Romanian theorist. His name is Mircea Eliade. And I was reading, you know, a book of his called The Sacred and the Profane. And it's sort of like all about the creation of um, like, human mythology from and its roots in like you know uh pre-christian religions and so like alongside that was the context where i watched this film and there was like so much interweaving for me just about the creation of the self and um you know the way that we create mythologies and you know less in the film it has like a little less religious resonance but I still was like really struck by you know all of these thoughts and reflections that I had about it and I was like really really excited about it too because um I think there are so few films especially contemporary films that really like take these crises of identity that women have seriously um and that resolve them I mean in, in a way it's like the film just resolves their crisis at the end <laughs> yeah wow. with tires with a pile of tires yeah <laughs> which we'll get into <laughs> um yeah it, it's fascinating that you say that that you feel like it really captures you know i mean or it, it's actually one of the few films to to portray like you know that identity crisis because um a Altman on paper is credited as the writer, but they they basically admitted that Patricia Resnick actually co-wrote the script, and she was actually um she was uh, I think a PA on the film, and she actually you know did some contributed to the script, and she was eventually given like I think a year later uh, a script uh, credit for his next movie, which uh, I really like uh, called A Wedding. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah, so. There's definitely he definitely had some 
some feminine input. It wasn't just him conjuring this idea from from nothing. And yeah, we we can talk about that because you know the th- well, mainly the two main performances uh, have a big part of uh, play a big part in you know creating this idea of identity and um, getting to it. So um, yeah, Christina, it, would you be able to just describe to us like what what is the premise of of three women? Like uh, how does it? Oh, like (laughs) well you know so 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 millie it's there's millie is uh working at the spa for elderly people right yeah uh and so uh, millie encounters panky and you what, what you have are like basically these two souls who are kind of twinned in some ways because they're both we find out we find out that they both have the same name right right and then we also find out that they're both in Texas and uh, Pinky sort of forms this fixation, like this obsession with Millie and arranges to become her roommate. Um, and uh, the third the third woman sort of enters in because she's the um, the, the wife of their landlord, right? Um, right. And so it's not really plot a very plot-driven film, but... Uh, Willie gets, or sorry, Millie kicks Pinky out of the apartment because she's having a tryst with the with the landlord, and uh, <laughs> Pinky sort of, uh, what is it? A cry for help? Is it a suicide attempt? We don't know. Mm. Jumps into the pool, and that that's kind of what um, causes this crisis of identity. It's sort of the coma that she slips into. Um, and she, when she emerges from the coma, she thinks she's Millie, right? Yeah. And the 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 Willie character is really fascinating, and I, yeah. I I don't know if you want to get too much now into you know this kind of um, figure that she represents as like a kind of creator, right? Yeah, I mean, she's actually the first woman we see in the movie. She's painting the the mural, right, and the spa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it, it's it's fascinating that it's three women, but we we mo- mainly focus on these two. But Janice Rule, who plays the third woman, Willie, and yeah, the rhyme the, the rhyme of the names of Willie, Millie, and Pinky is interesting. Um, uh, yeah, she definitely. It, it's one of those weird things where she she doesn't really say much. Her presence is more peripheral, but like it carries weight. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And what I learned recently or just read is that there were entire monologues written for her oh. at Altman Cut. Yeah, which I would love to see those and love to hear those. Right. Apparent, she, uh, Janice Rule, is, was a really well-established, I think, stage actress from New York. Mm. And so he, because the film is was really heavily indebted to Ibba Bergman's persona, right? Yeah. He, I think he wanted to kind of mirror in that way uh, the was it, I think Liv Woman's character who's just adopts silence. Yeah. And so you kind of have Willie as like this very kind of silent figure, right? Yeah. And yeah, it's just fascinating how you, you don't really make the connection between the three of them until like much, much later on in the movie. Like you're you're mainly focused on the the Pinky and and Millie um relationship and just like how you know, Pinky is uh, at the beginning. She's kind of like a kid. You know, she's very playful, and she. Um, I I love this early scene where 
um, she encounters that that blonde girl um, at lunch, and then she sees another blonde girl in the uh, in the locker room, and they look alike. And then she says, "Hey, I'm you know I'm Pinky. Do you remember me from lunch?" And then the blonde girl just walks away and says, "That wasn't me." Yeah. <laughs> And then you find out that they're actually twins. And yeah, the, there's a fascinating story with that. And I guess that's how Altman works, that he actually just encountered these two twins and decided to cast them, even though they had never been in a movie before. Oh, you know? Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's exactly how he discovered Shelley Duvall. Right? Oh. So he just found her at a party and he cast her in Brewster McLeod. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she wasn't, an, she wasn't an actress. She was just a really interesting looking person. Yeah, and continues to be, and just uh, yeah, her Millie is like an incredible creation because it's uh, she apparently yes. wrote all of the diary entries, right? Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. That that diary is actually Shelley Duvall's uh, diary. Um, and yeah, I think she uh, he even allowed her to pick the colors, and hence that question earlier of of yellow and purple because she asked that to Pinky. Uh, do you like yellow and purple? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the apartment. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Which I'm sure, yeah, that, that's where a lot of the production budget went in. Because, you know, uh, I mean, you know, Steve's from L.A. I, I've lived in L.A. for a while. We're, we're familiar with the setup of this apartment building where it's like a courtyard and it, all the stairs are outside and then it meets at the center with a pool. And none of them are, are this colorful. You know, you don't get these purple, <laughs> like, uh, you know, handrails by the stairs and stuff like that, or the doors being painted a special color like it is in this movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's actually it's filmed in Palm Springs, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, I think they I mean, Palm Springs is like one of the hottest areas in Southern California. <laughs> so I think they, they they filmed it like in the fall. So it was a little cooler. Um and yeah, I mean, it, that's also the other thing about it. It's like it being set in the desert and like things being kind of farther apart from each other, you know, um, and a lot of there's fewer people. And then you're also just like so separated from each other out in the desert, mm-hmm. you know, and we haven't even talked about um, what is the name of the the bar that what kind of Western bar was it? Dodge City. Dodge City, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Dodge City. <laughs> yeah, where where these murals are that um that uh Willie is painting and it it has like uh I guess a shooting range in the back and also like a place to to ride your dirt bikes. Yeah, they're riding their dirt bikes. <laughs> and you know, um Pinky is just like smitten with it. She's like, "Oh, they got miniature golf." You know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the, those are the two main like settings. Well, three: uh, the spa, the the Dodge City bar, and um, the apartment. Uh, do you guys remember the the name of the apartment as well? I do not. Shoot. I want to say, um, say like a, some kind of desert cactus, like a saguaro or something. But I don't think that's right. Yeah, well, it? we'll have to <laughs> look it up. Yeah, well, I, I don't know why it's not in my notes. Oh man! But anyway, yeah, we'll we'll find out. Um. Yeah. Another interesting oh, thing with their I got name. it. The purple sage. There you go. All right. Purple the purple sage. sage. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So there's all these things with the names of the places. Uh, the names of the characters. Actually, yeah. If we can get into it, they're they're full names, by the way. So Millie is Millie Lamoureux. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pinky is Pinky Rose, which I'm. I guess is also Mildred Rose. 
And then Willie is Willie Hart. <laughs> Those are their names. And uh, yeah, since uh, Christina, you're, you're a French teacher, um, what does Lamoureux mean? Is that like a... I think for Pink, I think for Pinky especially, it's, you know, it's this signal because they're both from texas it's like yeah you know uh, millie is more of this like fashionable like maybe she came from texas by way of louisiana or has some kind of like uh cajun you know ancestry that she has that would have like a french last name but lamoureux i mean the way that she spells it doesn't have any particular meaning it's just like a rough calc on like the lover gotcha yeah, there, there's all these like um, happy accidents too that I love that you know Altman <laughs> kept in. Uh, that you guys probably noticed this too. The uh, whenever Millie gets into her car, the part of her skirt gets caught in the door. Yeah, I yeah, uh, I really love that car too. It's that it's a um... what is it, a Pinto? <laughs> Yeah. yeah it's, it's like one it's of the, the worst cars. It's the same one that uh not Elliot Gould, but the other lead is driving in California Split. Oh, George Seagal? Yeah, it's the one that George Seagal <laughs> is driving in California Split. It's just like a, a beat up yellow pinto. That's exactly oh, what I would have driven if I were, you know, <laughs> if I were around in the late seventies. If I could I could have driven back then. Yeah. And uh, I forgot the the way she describes it too when the car goes missing. Like she she has like a way of describing the color. She's like, oh, more of like a mustard yellow. Or yeah, something. mustard. Yellow. Yeah, that's <laughs> she's like it's like a French it. mustard. <laughs> French mustard. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, the film really just goes by vibe a lot. Like it's it's really it kind of. I mean, it, it's probably you know one of those rules that like. Uh, script writing 101 where it's like oh you should never do something where it's just a continuous and then you know uh, where like I mean the the major incident where you know uh, Pinky might have done the suicide attempt it doesn't happen and I mean this is a two hour movie a little over two hours and it doesn't happen like three quarters of the way mm-hmm. in the movie so there's a lot of just like hanging out with the characters and um this is the crazy thing so with with pinky like admiring so much of millie we kind of learn as we progress that nobody really respects millie (laughs) totally yeah yeah yeah. like her character i would describe as a time vulture like she's just talking (laughs) talking and talking and it's funny because when i was watching it um you know whenever i'm watching things that are set you know at at a time that I wasn't around. So, you know, in 77, you know, you know, I don't have a good reference of what it was actually like to be there. So when she's at, you know, for the first 20 minutes when she's talking and she's being friendly, but she's just filling the space. I was aware that she was being boring, but I was just kind of giving her the benefit of the doubt that, okay, maybe she's just being nice. And this was like, you know, kind of par for the course at that time. And it wasn't really until you get some of that good Altman um, overlapping dialogue in like the apartment complex mm-hmm. where you get a lot of the guy, you know, the guys in the in the apartment kind of under their breath and in the background, you know, calling her modern, uh, modern Millie or, you know, <laughs> hey, Tom, you better, you know, you better make sure you have a cough. 
Um, you know, oh, that's one of my favorite parts. That like was a big laugh for me. Yeah, totally. <laughs> he just ignores her and coughs. Like no, she. I think she's asking, "How's your cold?" <laughs> he just coughs and walks away. And so it wasn't until kind of getting some of that overlapping dialogue that it really locked into me. Oh no, she's supposed to be kind of this annoying, time vulturey, just rambling character, and that's how she's even viewed then. Like, like it's not just me looking at it from a modern lens. Well, I think that there's an aspect of it too that's just like totally implausible, though, because it's like you know, it's like anyone will tolerate. At the end of the day, Shelley Duvall is a beautiful woman, right? So anyone would sure. tolerate that kind of like boringness from her, you know. So that's why it's like you kind of got to suspend here your, your uh, you you kind you kind of got to suspend your um, imagination a bit and just, just put yourself in this world where Robert Altman wants her to really be detestable. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely some elements in it where uh it the movie treats it as like completely normal, but then when you like look back on it and you just think like actually that's really strange. I mean, one element that really stood out to me was uh after, you know, Pinky um has a suicide attempt and does she fall into a coma? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, yeah, the hospital and then when she comes to um her parents come to see her and I just took it as a fact. And I think this is also how I dream is that any kind of bizarre things that happen in my dream, I just take on face value. Like I don't question it. It's just like, Oh yeah, there's somebody flying, you know, kind of thing. Um, And with this one, I had that moment where I was just like, I just accepted that those were her parents. And then I realized later on, wait a minute, like they're way too old to be her parents. Like they're, they could be her grandparents, Mm -hmm. you know? And, And it's just the way that the movie treats, that those kind of moments is like you know it, it's kind of um yeah it, it feels like a dream and then we have a dream sequence later on in the movie right yeah yeah that's one thing i never i never kind of had trouble buying is that just like everybody would dislike her that much <laughs> you know right um yeah i mean i, I would say shelly duvall just um her her presence it it still can be an acquired taste you know um like i i feel like not everybody would be universally like attracted to her um but yeah it's just like it seemed like everybody didn't like her in the movie like it was she and yeah i don't know what um altman's intention was with that like this to to make shelly duvall unattractive to everybody yeah, she's you know she's a lot like Pinky. I think he, he, you know, she's just lost, and she mm. just she has to sort of deny to herself or cover up mm. being lost with like you know all of these little. She has the women's magazines. She's getting all of her recipes from, and she has the impression that she's dating. You know, she's like, oh, me and Tom, we'll we'll just go out on a date once he's over his cough, right? <laughs> uh well, she's never he never gets over the cough right and then you know she's really wants to get back together get together socialize with her former roommate and kind of like blows her off you know they're supposed to have a dinner party so it is you really just get the sense that she's kind of like battling uphill against her own loneliness and isolation yeah i, I mean another telling thing is that um she doesn't have lunch with the people who, who work at the spa. Like she goes across the street to the hospital. And that's actually where a lot of the people who live in the Purple Sage uh, work. Um, 
and yeah, that's where she ends up having lunch. And yeah, you also get more of that, like just people kind of not really listening to her, kind yeah. of ignoring her. <laughs> God, it's um, sad. Like that yeah. was that's a. I think that that's the main thing is like she's a great actress and she's awesome at having that subtle hint of sadness mm. that just like kind of reeks. And like I and I feel like that's what is being told in those scenes was it's just that even though she's presenting cheery and talkative and friendly the uh, the other characters can sense the, the the depression and the sadness and maybe that like that's what's like so off-putting right yeah there's that des- the des- desperation too which is why she ends up you know bringing home the landlord <laughs> yeah yeah like i think yeah isn't there a phrase yet yeah, that desperation is a stinky cologne and it, it oh, rings, rings true here. Yeah. And then, yeah, <laughs> sorry, sorry, kind of, yeah, jump on what Christina was saying there, but just, um, yeah, ultimately the only person she's dating is married. And that's really sad. Right. Yeah. Cause he's just kind of the, yeah, the second option. And yeah, you, you feel like all these things, even though she's not really acknowledging it, like, um, you know, uh, she tries to present that, that, that face that everything's cool and all that um and that she's you know sure of herself it, i feel like yeah it eventually explodes and that's when you know she takes it out on on pinky and starts blaming her for everything and i mean you know it's a weird roommate situation to begin with that they share the same bed <laughs> they're in the same room and they share the same bed. they don't even have two separate beds um and you know that might be that whole thing of of the melding of the two people too, you know, it's just the, the, them both in the same bed and yeah. Yeah. Using the same diary, wearing the same clothes. Mm. Yeah. Even though they're, you know, they're both uh, known to kind of be idiosyncratic mm-hmm. characters, but like Shelly Duvall and, and Sissy Spacek are very different physical types. You know, Shelly Duvall is more kind of lanky and sure. taller and, and Sissy Spacek is a little more petite. You know, um, so it, it's a strange thing. And then also Sissy's basically a redhead, you know, and Shelly's, uh, you know, a brunette. So just them kind of melding together is is a strange like mixture. Yeah, right. And, and I do like there's a quote early on, I think, when they're following the twins. Yeah. Where, where Pinky says, I wonder what it's like to be twins. Ah, and yeah. And it's, and it's kind of interesting that that kind of. I guess kind of plays out how they, you know, kind of speaking to what you, what you two are both saying, how they start to meld. Yeah. That's what she says. Is like, oh, it would be so nice to be a twin because if you didn't want to be yourself, you could just be someone. Like she has this <laughs> idea that like twins are the same person or that they're just interchangeable. So she's really kind of like looking for that way to just you know sort of switch her own identity. Yeah, and you can kind of there's like little foreshadowings early on in the movie too like uh she plays it off as a mistake but you know do you guys remember when um when pinky uh clocks in millie's uh, oh, uh that's time right. yeah. <laughs> uh time card yeah, yeah. so oh, there's right. those yeah. things okay. yeah and then um you know she takes her social security number and her phone number uh so there's all these these things you know that that's what she gives for her um Identity yeah. and then, yeah, eventually she steals uh, <laughs> Millie's French mustard, <laughs> yellow mustard car, the yellow <laughs> Pinto. Yeah. Like, I will say, I, I appreciate that this movie, you know, 
in different hands, it would take some darker turns, you sure. know, with, 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 you know, with the idea of, of stolen identity and all these things. And I, I liked where it ended up, um, yeah. where it kind of got a little vague, um, well, you could argue that the, that the turn it took was dark. Yeah. We have the stillbirth, and then they do. I mean, it's right. implied that they murder. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> I think the the straightforward version of this would be single white female. That's uh, the... <laughs> yeah. That's where I thought it was kind of going. Was was yeah. was going to go to like some battle between the Millies. Yeah, but yeah, right. But Altman is a lot smarter than that. Like he yeah. that that's the other thing that he's very good at is you know. Avoiding cliches, mm -hmm. you know, he, he you think, yeah, the, I think it's because he relies on intuition and like just letting things flow that it, it takes its own direction, that he's able to avoid the, those cliches. I mean, it ties back to that thing that I was talking about with his um his inspirations, you know, how he says that it's things he doesn't want to do. Um, you know, that's really it. He's learned from all these other cliched movies and the choices that they make that he he makes different choices. Um, but yeah, let, let's talk about this final reel of the yeah. film because this is really where it kind of goes into overdrive. So, so first we have the the dream sequence, which you know is like submerged in water, which we haven't even brought up, like how water is like a consistent theme throughout the movie. Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's even if it's your even if the swimming pool is empty, right? Yeah. You get so many just different swimming pools, and uh, the mural art within the swimming pools too is just it's sort of like has this really kind of like primal, you know. You have these figures that are kind of like simian, and the, and then they're also like very very sexualized. Yeah, um, which that that's such brilliant mural work. I don't know if you guys read the story about what happened to the mural artist. No, what happened? He just, you know, like right after, right after he made these, he made these paintings for the film. And then he kind of just was like walking down the street one day and he just got hit by a truck. Jeez. What? And died. Yeah. It's like yeah. the final destination. Shit. I know. So that's what <laughs> I was saying. Like in a, in a lot of ways, we're so lucky that we have this film at all because there's so many like things that would have made it impossible if even if he tried to shoot it just a few months later you know right yeah there's so many films in the 70s where it was just like right place at the right time mm -hmm. for it to happen you know <laughs> it's totally. like um yeah and this was definitely one of them and um yeah going back to the water thing do you guys know how they were able to achieve that like visual effect he said it was just like oil wasn't it like oil yeah, it, yeah. I, I don't know if you you've ever had one of these things it's like a, it it's kind of a, a I want to say like a fiberglass, like kind of square. And it has like this oil that's like blue color. And sometimes you would have like um, a surfboard or like an island on it and it would be floating. Like, I don't know if you either of you have had one of those things or have seen it at somebody's house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what they were using. They just placed it in front of the camera. And then, you know, you have this flowing uh going on and you know it, it kind of simulates like um amniotic fluid you know which is another sure. thing like leading to to birth and um yeah I, I i remember like reading that um altman wasn't very happy with the dream sequence like he just felt like a lot of it kind of came off like cheaply but i i loved it like it's one of my favorite moments in the movie is like 
seeing images again and they're kind of recontextualized like um you know we see the twins by the pool and they're kind of like mirroring each other and then um we see pinky uh, we didn't even mention that incident that kind of starts like millie like blaming her for everything is when she she spills the the shrimp cocktail sauce on herself <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and then uh i it was originally supposed to be just like a a scene and then it became an outtake where she pretends that she like stabbed herself and she's lying on the ground and you see that in the dream sequence and you know I, i'm glad they didn't include it as a scene where she's like playing a prank it works so much better mm-hmm. in the in the dream sequence um and yeah it leads to um the the willie giving birth and um of course the baby had to be a boy you know like i feel like that that was the natural mm-hmm. um progression that it couldn't be another woman um and yeah it's it's like pinky up until that point she's like very she had coming out of that coma she had become very assertive and you know kind of rebelling um but then at that point she's just frozen in time you know and she's not doing anything to help and then it ends up being a stillbirth really well done scene like that whole sequence is amazing um and uh yeah like i I don't think i've seen anything like that in any film so yeah way to go that's what you know i had initially really thought that it was very profound and then when you read altman's take on it he's almost sort of flippant about it where he just (laughs) is kind of like oh that stupid you know dream sequence thing (laughs) it's like all right well some of us some of us thought it was interesting i was i don't know if you guys had this experience of watching it but i felt like especially the way that you know uh millie was trying to kind of act like a midwife to willie especially yeah. since she just like sort of presents herself as like so competent and you know she's working with the elderly and you know mm-hmm. kind of in a clinical capacity um they were kind of like switching places mm. uh, willie and millie or at least in my mind, I don't know if that was the actual blocking or just the way it seemed, where it was like couldn't really tell if Millie was oh. giving birth and and uh, and and Lee was help, helping her deliver, or vice versa. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't notice that. Yeah, um, I, I was just gonna say, yeah, because it definitely seems like the Willie character is kind of like you would kind of view her more like you would view a midwife today. She kind of has that earthy, mm. you know. Um, you know, kind of woo-woo kind of vibe <laughs> that, um, yeah. you know, like she seems like the kind of lady that would be down to clown and kind of get it cracking with the home birth. And yeah. so <laughs> to kind of see her, yeah, you know, need, needing help. And then, yeah, to see the Millie character in that position, um, you know, a, you know, asking, what do I do? What's your, you know, you know, well, Millie, um, you know, to her credit, she tried. Yeah, you know, for sure. what do you what do you do in that situation? Is you're like, go get an ambulance. She told Pinky to do it. Pinky just stood there, right? Yeah, right. And that's what eventually kind of snaps her back into her own identity, right? Is you know, Millie with the blood on her hands, just being like, "You are supposed to be assertive. This is not yeah. your. This is not your real identity. Yeah. You know, you're you're just acting assertive. That's not who yeah. you actually are." Yeah, and that's one of the memorable like punchlines of that scene is the the bloody slap. Yeah, you know, <laughs> oh, right. when Millie walks out. 
Um, yeah, it's a scene that just kind of shows in, we can put on a face, we can pretend to be something, but in, in the moment of crisis, in the moment right. of truth, your true self kind of comes out. Absolutely. You know yeah. I mean? That's a great way to put it. Yep, absolutely. And so, yeah, there, there's a weird, like, uh, I want to say after that cut, is there a time jump? We don't know. <laughs> it's never yeah. really that clear, but I love how am- ambiguous the final sequence is. Because uh, we we catch up to them and they all look different, you know. It's I like Willie looks confused. older. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious what what your guys takes are on what what this all means because it's it's pretty it's 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 pretty <laughs> jo- not jarring. It it is like kind of a smooth send you away ending, but it's it's a little baffling. Yes. All right. Yeah. Let's hear Christina's perspective. What do you think happens in the end? So. Um, the on Altman on Altman, he's just he's <laughs> nice. describing that uh-huh. like what ha- what happens. They he describes it as like you know almost like three um, elephant seals, which I don't know if you, if you guys know about like the gender dynamics among elephant seals, but they're very very no. um, you know kind of bi- binary where it's like you have. The male elephant seal who's like very violent and dominating and the female elephant seals who like just have to deal with their tyranny and so he's saying it's like three three <laughs> elephant seals who kind of like three female ele- elephant seals who kind of like knocked the male elephant seal off the rock and so they all set up house together and sort of have this you know it's it's hard to tell how far apart they are in age but like certainly Will, Willie's the oldest and then you have Millie and Pinky and it's kind of like this kind of like intergenerational household that they set up just as three women together mm-hmm. and they've clearly taken um taken a uh, control of the um what's the name of their ranch there Dodge City yeah Dodge City there you go and um it's the oh I think it's a uh, he he's del- the the delivery boys delivering the the Coca Cola. Hope. So yeah. That yeah. is uh, uh, Dennis Christopher from Breaking Away. Oh wow! Yeah, young Dennis Christopher. Interesting connection. Yeah, and he's kind of <laughs> like, so, so what happened to uh, uh, to what's his name? And they're like, well, Edgar. I was like, yeah, Edgar. Oh, it was a uh, accident with the gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he had some sort of gun mishap. Yeah, likely story. Which is funny because the girl, at least uh, Millie and Willie, like show themselves adept, like they can all handle a gun, right? Right, yeah, especially oh, after yeah. Pinky comes out of the uh, the coma. Exactly. So it's and she's more reserved. A Tex- yeah. Texan girl thing, maybe. Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're all gun-toting in Texas. Um, so what do you guys yeah. think? What do you guys think happened? Uh, do you want to go, Steve? Sure. I, yeah, so this is just me just kind of thinking it out loud. Um, yeah, that's something related to the death of the baby it almost kind of gets the the natural catharsis would be to kind of somehow get rid of Edgar, almost like put all the bad feelings on him and to get rid of him. And then they can have like a clean slate again in a way. Cause you know, his character isn't, you know, seems like a pretty awful dude. I don't know if, if the movie is like alluding to that he's to blame for the stillbirth, Mm. Um, you know, like the stress he's created in the environment. I don't know. Um, possibly, but then, yeah, ultimately then by getting him out of the way, then they can, yeah, I guess align as a family unit with Sissy Spacek taking the role as the child. Mm-hmm. Um, right. 
Yeah, because yeah, uh, Pinky even refers to Millie as her mother. You know, when she's like, uh, when they have to sign off on the Coke delivery. Mm-hmm. She says, oh, yeah, let me check in with my mother. That's so, right. Yeah. And um, yeah, like, again, I don't know what the climate is in the 70s, but I imagine this is like a pretty feminist kind of deal. And, um, you know, it probably meant a lot and hit in a certain way in that era. That is probably also a factor in, in that ending. Right. And I mean, you know, I feel like the movie's strength is his ambiguity. So I like keeping it open. But I, I'm also fascinated by all the different interpretations. And I think um, I forgot mm. which specific poster it was that had the... I, it might have been the French poster, actually, that had the um, this tagline on it, which kind of yeah sums it up. It's uh, one woman became two, two women became three, and three women became one. And I love that. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, there's there's some analyses that have said like you know that at the end, you know, basically uh, Willie is the grandmother, Millie is the mother, and um, uh, Pinky is the the daughter. Right. You know, so they've kind of become the three generations. Yeah, I mean, this was actually like Roger Ebert's um, favorite movie of 1977. And yeah, I mean, it's great that we have you as a guest, Christina, because I, I am curious, like, you know, how how it relates to you forming your identity and how this resonated with you as a woman, you know, because this is something that Steve and I have no idea about. I think that that's, you know, something that Robert Altman brings up, which is that he's like, I don't have any personal experiences in women. It's just he has the sense that right. like women just do lead kind of more interesting internal lives. Um, and I think that to some extent, I've I've heard this paraphrase this way before. I'm not sure which uh which film critic said it, but it's almost like as a man, you have this ability to like see and describe the female condition in an almost privileged way, and so that's why a lot of times like the best films about women will be about by a man, and vice versa, where you have these like you know like the quintessential film about male psychology. You know, some people some people say is um. Uh, uh, point Break, right? Which is like directed by a woman, mm. <laughs> where it's like right. as as the opposite <laughs> sex, you kind of like get this, you know, privileged view of of how how you know either women interact or men interact. Um, and so I think that it actually you kind of have blind spots. Like if you if you as a woman try to like make a film about womanhood, like you kind of have some of your own like blind spots or prejudices that you're bringing to it. Whereas like, if you like let these women like Sissy Spacek and um, Shelley Duvall like develop characters based on their experiences organically, you're gonna have, it's gonna come together as like something a little more authentic, perhaps in theory. (laughs) Cool. All right. So do you guys have any more like parting thoughts? I mean, I am going to continue to watch it and think about it. The first time I watched it was about 10 years ago. So maybe I'll watch it again in another 10 years and see what my experience is like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think the Millie character is like the best on-screen depiction of, of a time vulture type of a person, <laughs> which definitely exists. We've all encountered this individual. Maybe they're in our family. That's like, um, I don't know if you've seen um, what we do in the shadows, but it's like the en- energy vampire, you know, like the EV. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, that's great. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Carlo, do you have, do you have a wine pairing for three women? Yeah. I mean, I think persona is the obvious uh, <laughs> wine pairing, but I'm actually going to go a little more. I think a lot of people's like kind of entry level into film, which is a uh, Mulholland drive. Mm, That's actually what I would pair with, with three women. One. Yeah. yeah. Well done. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, yeah, I was trying to think of another dream like one, but I couldn't quite get there. So I got. Uh, so I'm gonna pair the Shining. You know, just <laughs> si similar in terms of like you can remember all the characters. Like the the, the characters in uh, three women are really sharp, and same thing with the Shining. And I kind of feel like Jack, the Jack character in the Shining, is like the only person that that would actually marry Millie. You know what I mean? Like just someone who's a, a little bit of like a psycho and um, <laughs> you need masochist. to be a psycho. Yeah. Sadist. Yeah. Okay. And how about you, Christina? What's your wine pairing for three women? Okay. So kind of to the theme that I was just mentioning, uh, having a sort of privileged uh, perspective on the opposite sex, I would take a film from the previous year, 1976, Mikey and Nikki by Elaine May. Where she, oh, yeah, I love that movie. Where she directs Peter Falk and John Cassavetes, um, and they're that's kind of like a really buddy, like a kind of buddy comedy gone horribly wrong, right? <laughs> yes, I think that's my favorite Cassavetes performance. Really? Yeah, yeah, like uh, that he didn't direct himself, <laughs> and yeah, I, it's just. Uh, and I mean, Elaine May, I've actually kind of been fascinated with her because she only made four films, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah so i uh, i still have some gaps i haven't seen ishtar uh, i love heartbreak kid and what was the other movie have you seen um uh crisis and succeed is that it or oh a new leaf oh, okay yeah, that was leaf. that was um have you seen yeah. um the fury by brian de palma <laughs> no i haven't uh, but i know the ending i think that might <laughs> i've seen the... that might be my favorite cast of eddie's performance but, yeah mikey and nikki's up there <laughs> <laughs> yeah the ending of well i mean both endings of mikey and nikki and the fury are like showstoppers you know it's just man yeah he's great yeah Casavetes. but yeah that's a good pairing i think mikey and nikki like very, very left field it just because Weird. you know we don't want to just focus only on on women right we guys also focus on male psychology too <laughs> absolutely yeah and i mean that's even more fascinating is like you know the the kind of cross gender explorations you know like uncharted territory oh, i think i absolutely think there should be more women making films about men it's like you know i feel like yeah. if you're a woman filmmaker there's all this pressure to like you know do the do the feminist thing like do something authentic about feminist psychology it's like well i think it would be really revealing for a lot of men to see themselves you know see themselves reflected the, the way women see them yeah i mean you know actually one filmmaker is one of my favorites who who's done several films about like exploring male identity is uh claire denis mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah absolutely i i think that i'm unfortunately i'm being very uh sort of anglo-centric because there are european filmmakers who are doing that yeah. absolutely yeah yeah would you describe the hurt locker as exploring the male psyche <laughs> what do you guys what do you guys think i mean Jesus. I don't i've never seen it yeah. it's a blind spot for me oh, okay cool yeah I mean, right. that isn't that sort of like a little more Oscar bait? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, speaking of male psyche, I mean, I think if we're ready to move on to the next one. Oh, yes. Yes. 
uh, just before we move on to um, to OC and Stiggs, there was one more question I had to ask about three women mm. for both of you. And Christina, Christina, you've kind of like alluded to it already, but is three women a keeper? Absolutely. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and Steve? Not only is this a keeper, Carlo, but this is going in Steve Smith's Cinemonian. <laughs> Steve Smith Cinemonian. Yeah, Carlo. This movie nice. is amazing. It's I'm going to think about it for a long time. So yeah, so Steve Smith Cinemonian is kind of my, my version of Carlo's canon. Um, yeah, it's in there. It's it's an amazing film. I was shocked by yeah, how, how wow. easy, easy it was to watch, how fun it was. Yeah, let's go. That's amazing. Yeah, this is like a first that we actually had a movie that just instantly entered Cinemonian. And, you know, I already alluded to uh, Carlos Cannon, like me having this run of of films I watched uh, in a row. So, yeah, it's definitely up there. And I think it's it's a movie that will continue to grow on me and, you know, I will like revisit it. But I think, yeah, seeing what you talked about, like watching it in another 10 years, it's I think it'd be great to like re- give it like that time, uh, appropriate ma- amount of time to like. I I mean that's my favorite type of revisit when you've forgotten a lot of the movie, mm-hmm. and then you come back to it and be pleasantly surprised. Exactly. All right. So yeah, I think we all agree that that's a keeper. Um. Yes. So yeah, just leading up to OC and Stigs. I mean, I'm just. I it's just fascinating to trace you know, um, Altman's career trajectory from this point to Ocean Stiggs. Um, and like, so he followed up um, three women with a wedding, which was kind of a joke because uh, I think he was interviewed and he was asked what your next movie was going to be. And he said, yeah, we're just going to film a wedding. And that's what they ended up doing. And I think actually it's one of his best films. It's one of my favorites. I actually, I think of the ensemble films like the large cast like this is uh, i think up there for me like top three um altman um yeah it's just such a great movie and um yeah and then basically it all fell apart with the disaster of popeye you know uh once he reached 1980 it was just like yeah that that was well for a lot of filmmakers who like had great 70s like yeah the 80s was the decline like studios were just I mean, 1980 was the year of, of Heaven's Gate, and that's the movie that everybody mm-hmm. points to yeah. as like where we we've given too much um, leeway to these filmmakers, and we got to take it back. <laughs> you know, we can't just let them do these passion projects that they want to do because it's just too much. Um, it's not only that, but it, I feel like if you just think of the cult, like culture in the United States in the '80s in general, it's like Reagan. Yeah, yes. it's like, that definitely plays a big part in OC and Stigs. I feel like that atmosphere. It's just like we're just going to do like pure id, right? Yeah, <laughs> mm. right. So by the time OC and Stigs came around, like he, like Altman, had really fallen out of favor with the studios, and I think he was only even able to get this movie done because I think his former agent became like an executive at MGM. So, um, and there's this whole like controversy with the year. Cause Steve and I were like trying to determine it. Oh yeah. And you know, like 1985 is like a golden year for us. We always point to it as like one of the great movie years. And on IMDb it's listed as 1985. 
So I, I had to dig in. And like, so what happened is basically this movie was actually shot in 1983 and they finished um, post-production in 84. And then um, I guess they submitted it for um, like uh, copyright and the MPAA rating in 85. So that's why um, that's the year that's on the IMDb page. But, you know, the actual release date wasn't until 87. So that was when it finally got a theatrical run. Like, you know, they they just dumped it. And in a weird way, like, you know, Altman had already moved on from this movie. So he actually ended up having two movies that year in 87. Another movie that I, I believe is like really underrated by him. And I'm wondering if you've seen it, Christina, um, Beyond Therapy. No, I haven't seen that. Oh, it's fantastic. And I think like the final shot of that film you would really be tickled by. <laughs> Wait, for what it's worth, I, I did think I've seen Stiggs was fantastic too. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I guess Altman loves that kind of final kiss off, you know, with, with his shots, you know, his final shots. It's also, you can mm. just tell he just loves helicopters. Yes. <laughs> yeah, helicopters are play big. I mean, you know, shortcuts opens with helicopters. Yeah, it's from his mash um, days. It's from his mash days. Right? Yeah, mash. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mash also opens with a helicopter. And he wasn't he in Korea? He was in some war, I think. Oh, I, I would imagine he was. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's that age. He was like draftable, and um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, Ocean Stiggs comes around finally in 1987. And then, yeah, they they largely consider Beyond Therapy and and Ocean Stiggs to be his worst movies. You know, whenever we look into like uh, Altman's like uh, filmography, that it's cited as that. And then I think part of that is also because they were so hard to to see and find for a while. I mean, including this movie. Uh, well, Ocean Stiggs, like there was a DVD that came out a few years ago, but now it's like really overpriced and. And it's not available streaming, but then this um, it's really great distributor from the UK, uh, Radiance. They're like, I really like their selection of films. They're they're a boutique label. They release a lot of, of Blu-rays, and yeah, their selections are awesome. And this was one of the movies that they decided to restore. And yeah, that's actually what we got to see was this new restoration that they've done. And yeah, I think it's time. Like people with this new audience, like people can. Um, you know, see for themselves where it really stands, you know? Yeah, like, uh, I, I I, don't think it's it's as bad as, as people as I have said it is, you know? I mean, it really has low ratings and reviews on, on IMDb as well. I think you, you know? can go in looking for that kind of, you know, teen, whatever, it, whatever the genre in the 80s was, like the teen comedy, right? Um, yeah. He was satirizing it. So I think that the fact that it was just billed as like a straightforward teen comedy is sort of like, well, if you go and look, if you go in expecting that, I could see why you might be a little confused. Yeah, it's very different. You know, we covered a, a teen movie from 1985 already with The Secret Admirer. Right. And um, and that's, you know, kind of the straightforward version of, of an O.C. and Stiggs. O.C. and Stiggs is, got, you know, it's, it's very rare to find a teenage kind of raucous comedy where the two male leads aren't like horned up mm -hmm. like these guys aren't <laughs> after sex in, no. in, in in this movie they're after like yuppie revenge mm -hmm. um and it's like 
there actually is a noble cause that kind of gets quick. They quickly kind of move through, you know, relating to OC's grandfather's insurance being pulled by Schwab. Right. But it's like yeah. not about that. It's a, it's like it's about just fucking with this rich family um, in ridiculous ways. And I can't say I like this movie, but I'm I'm thinking about it a lot. <laughs> And it's definitely memorable. So, yeah, I'm excited to kind of get into this one. Yeah. So, Christina, you've been through, like, watching a lot of Altman films, but this was something that kind of opened new avenues for you. How was this experience of watching O.C. and Stiggs finally? I loved it. I laughed my ass (laughs) off. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was just like, I would never have been able to see it if you guys hadn't, you know, sort of hooked Mm -hmm. me up. So I was like, oh, this is awesome. Um, it's, I was, I was laughing out loud and I was just like, I can't believe I never heard of this film before. No, I'm glad. Yeah. I, I was also, I just like was completely enamored with this movie. Like I, I can understand why a lot of people dislike it, but it's a movie that's made for me. (laughs) Like that's really what I feel like, you know, um, it's so funny. I mean, the performances he gets out, especially out of like, you know, the young Schwab. Every, oh, every is that scene, um uh John Cryer? John Cryer. Every scene that he, every scene that he was in, it's just I would just hilarious, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess at this point I was already an Altman convert, so like you know, uh, any of his movies is still going to be like fascinating for me, no matter what. But that was the pleasant surprise where I was just like, in a strange way, even though I don't really find. OC and Stiggs, the characters, like charming. The movie itself was charming, you know? Mm. And I, I think it, it really comes from also just having, like, in the 90s, just like a steady diet of of HBO. <laughs> and, you know, they would they would have this thing where they would feature like a bunch of comedies and they were all really bad. But I was just like happy to watch a movie. And like I feel like if they had ever done OC and Stiggs and HBO, like it could have had like its own life, you know, Absolutely. it could have grown and become this cult classic but well now it, it probably will be with this blu-ray release yeah. uh but yeah there's just something about it like again it's it's all it's very freewheeling like uh, the scenes are almost like autonomous to each other like it's just yeah it feels like sketch comedy like it almost feels like the better version of this would you could make it now as a youtube mm. as like you as a series of youtube shorts or clips yeah. or something uh, you know, it's like it's almost like making it as a movie in this era in the middle of so many other teen comedies at this time. Like it kind of gets lost. And I think, yeah, like what you're saying, it's it's ep- it's episodic. You know, you have yeah. the opening where they're, you know, going back and forth with that turning couch trying to avoid Schwab. Like That's its own <laughs> scene. You got them going to Mexico is an episode. You know, so it's like you have you know, the, the wedding. So oh yeah, that's a great sequence. It's like all these things could be consumed in little t- ten to twenty minute chunks, and that might be like the better—I don't know—better way to consume the OC and Stig's adventure here. But um, but yeah, it's but it's you know it's still pretty damn interesting. Yeah, I mean you can you can watch it piecemeal, but I also feel like, yeah, it it still works for me if you're on board with it. You know, that's sure. really the thing. Uh, like. And I, and it's funny you kind of figure it out right away. So I'm gonna so I I I've mm-hmm. pulled some clips from this okay. film. All right, let's hear it here. 
And like from this an opening clip, you're you're either in or you're out. <laughs> so that's like the MGM lion roaring right. OC and Stiggs. And like, yeah. so like right there, it's all laid out what you're up against. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yeah, Christina, what was the part that hooked you? Was it that? Was it the opening or? I think I was just so like trying to figure out what was going on with the Schwab obsession <laughs> that they yeah. were just sort of camped out right in this guy's backyard while he was in it right just stealing his lobster and uh just obsessing over schwab right and then you get to you know they're on campus and they're kind of like in the guidance counselor's like office or whatever he's like showing like all the dioramas and projects that they made just about the schwab family and their like weird obsession (laughs) with schwabs and i was like this is so kind of demented and wonderful yeah yeah and i do like that in that in those opening scenes especially at the school you kind of get that they aren't the oc and stigs aren't viewed as bad kids or you know or really even though they're doing pranks like you get a sense that the that the staff and the other kids at the school like them like they're not total um i don't know just like assholes you know, in a way, like they're they're a part of the fabric of this community, and everyone you know is fine calling them OC, fine calling them Stigs, um, and yeah. So I thought that that was you know kind of an interesting way to kind of approach these characters. That you know, like if this was American Pie, they would be kind of be given sort of bigger personalities, or you know, just it would just have a different vibe. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I. I think the closest analog to them, if we were pairing it with American Pie, is probably um, uh, Sean William Scott's character Stifler. <laughs> like yeah, I would sure. say, yeah, that could be like their 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 kid grown up. <laughs> yeah, but he's Stifler. so horned up. He's so like like. <laughs> well, upset. that's the '90s for you. That's uh, he's yeah. gone through the '90s. Like we're past the Reagan conservative. Like just say no stuff and sure. that, i mean you know that, that's i guess part of the appeal for me of this movie is that it's there's just like this atmosphere of anarchy and mischief you know um like it's really breaking against yeah. like being you know straight edge in a way <laughs> yeah it's um, frivolous yeah it's yeah. like every day we're gonna show up in a in, in a new set of costumes we're going to play these characters. We're going to get a crazy loud car, zero miles to the gallon. It's, yeah, what was um, the name of yeah. that car? Uh, <laughs> oh. Yeah, they, they had a name for it. I'm a, oh, man. Um, okay. We got to look, look this up. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was like a, it was like a Studebaker that they tricked out, right? The, the Gila Monster. The Gila, Gila Monster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the other thing, too. We didn't even mention, like, the setting. You know, I mean, it's also in the desert, but uh, this time around, we're, oh, yeah. we're in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's kind of cool. You know, we've been uh, sampling a lot of films with, not, you know, non-stereotypical settings. You know, with the uh, last ep, we did Cloak and Dagger in San Antonio. San Antonio, yeah. So it, it's kind of cool, yeah, to be in Phoenix and to really, you really get a sense of the geography and what it's like in the summer in Phoenix. Like you want to be in a pool. Yeah. Um, you want to be in shorts. Yeah, the whole deal. Yeah, cacti everywhere. Yeah. And get, <laughs> yes. Accidentally pricked by. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes too is the the dinner table where um the, uh is it, um, 
whose mom is it? Is it OC's Stig's. mom or oh, Stig's mom? Yeah. Stig's mom, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> loves decorating the house with um uh with the cacti yeah, and yeah, even yeah. she's getting pricked by <laughs> the cacti. Um Oh, right, and Stiggs is like you know, kind of mouthing off and saying these things, and like the dad, like the parents don't care at all because they are just in their, they're just in their own worlds. The mom is in her acting thing. The dad is is like hiding an affair, and it's just like right. So so yeah, it's uh that feels true to like kids growing up in the eighties that where you're just kind of like left to your own devices. Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess thing it was a different world back then. You it was a lot safer to just go out and play. There was not as much like stranger danger, I feel sure. like back then. Yeah. Um and yeah, I mean, uh, again, the setting I think plays a big part of it. Like maybe yeah, Arizona was just, you know, so much more of a, an open world for you to just like explore and hang around and yeah, we'll, we'll, let's get to this. Like um so they encounter, you know, a guy who was like had a legendary 80s and you know legendary crazy man dennis hopper and that's where the helicopter comes in <laughs> this movie oh god it was just such yeah yeah i was just confused like it seemed like such a weird re- like reprise of his apocalypse now role right right where he's just like they even played crazy. the ride of the valkyries yeah where <laughs> i was just Lord. like what is he what is all doing like what is this is this a nod to coppola is it is he bringing that like satire to bear against it? I don't know. It it must be the satire thing because the eighties was like the best time to like get a Vietnam vet type character in for comedic purposes. But then also, you know, like heavy Vietnam movies were were occurring at this time. You know, I think right. by the time this, this movie came out, I think Platoon probably already w- was Platoon out was eighty seven. Well, t- it was eighty six, but it won. I just know it won the Oscar for eighty seven. Right. Right. So it must and have then, yeah. And when did Full Metal Jacket come out too? That was '87 like, as well. Yeah. Right. So and so I think by the time OC and Six got the re- got the release in '87, you know there it's yeah uh, you know heavy Vietnam vet saturation. Right. And but it, it's playing for a comedic effect, unlike those other two movies. Yeah, so it's exactly. like exactly. Yeah. The the mis- mixed reception really <laughs> was the thing, and I. I, I don't know. Uh, that was something I didn't come across in my research, like what time of year MGM dumped it. But I'm assuming it's a January dump. Like that's when they do it. Because, you know, it's like that's really when it's a studio. No, shockingly, it's I mean, on Wiki, it says release date July 10. Whoa, right in summer. Oh, man. So summer blockbuster. Bing, bang, boom. <laughs> Here we go. OC and Stiggs. What movies were it? was it up against because i mean that's the other thing about the 80s was just like you know you see these people posting on like twitter like of the the marquees of movies that were playing during the summer and stuff and how great they were and you know they would post like we used to be a society kind of thing like (laughs) and so i'm wondering like yeah what was it up against in july of 87 it looks pretty big. Okay, so yeah, I just pulled up and I'm looking at a website called thenumbers.com. So I don't okay. know how, how great it is. I think what grossed the most was Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds Whoa. in Paradise. <laughs> yeah. Then you got uh, Made to Order. Um, oh, the, man, that's been the, buried. The Squeeze. And then some other summer movies I can't, like Blood, Di- Blood Diner. I, yeah, mm. I don't know. And then Jaws Jaws Four came out that the following weekend. 
And oh, and Inner Space, the previous. Interesting. This is why I don't watch um, movies until they've stood the test of time. There you <laughs> <Yeah>. go. <laughs> the algorithm is right again. You know how uh, much uh, hype they, these movies uh, probably got. God. We've never heard of any of them. Yeah, yeah that's that is strange, right? Like you know, in in that moment in time, that's what the taste was. But you know, obviously, it evolves. I I. I'm like you, Christina, but with music. That's what I do. I I never listen to music as it comes out, like unless it's an artist that I, you know, I greatly admire. Yeah. Um. But most of the time, yeah, it takes me a while to to actually listen to music, (laughs) to to certain albums when they come out. But Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's seeming like I mean, I would love to just do a review of '87 and just see (sighs) what movies came out that year, aside from Full Metal Jacket. I know Predator. Was it Lost Lost Boys? Because mm. that's Maybe. what I was I was thinking of pairing it with Lost Boys. Oh, <laughs> you're already uh, <laughs> tipping your hand with the that's good. the wine pairing, huh? It's Lost Boys '87. Yes, know. it is. Yeah. So yeah, that was the same year. Oh yeah, that that definitely must have been a movie that overshadowed it. It's like people came out of OC and Sting like this is not Lost Boys. Yeah. Imagine <laughs> if OC and Sting came across vampires. Yeah. Yeah. What exactly. Happen? That's what it needed. It needed more vampires. Or it could have just been set in Santa Cruz, right? Uh, there you go. Sure. Well, before we move off the Hopper stuff, I, I have two Hopper quotes pulled into the Let's soundboard go. Oh, here. Great. Oh, wonderful. Because, um, yeah, you know, he's 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 pretty legendary. Okay, here's the first one. I think that this is when they first are, are talking um when they're when, when they first kind of pull up to the hopper compound don't bring strangers up here and go tell me they're cops man no no what are you crazy person or I, something I'm, I'm not a cop my grandfather my grandfather he was a cop but he's not a cop he's retired and you're retarded <laughs> so you know textbook 80s humor mm-hmm. textbook <laughs> hopper only someone like hopper can pull that off for a laugh you know obviously it's very dated um all right and then i got one more this is when uh, they so so obviously they've gone to see Dennis Hopper and then and the other dude who who is a famous actor too. I, oh, he, I didn't recognize. So they're going for a wedding gift essentially, <laughs> and uh, and here's where the wedding gift gets broken out. Guns are disease, man. You think about that. They ravage and kill. There's nothing you can do to stop them. Set by more of the same disease and vaccinate yourself against it. More guns. Doctors and hospitals, they like thrive on the disease, man, because disease is profit to them. With the profit, they buy more of the same disease and vaccinate themselves with what's left over. They infect us and they kill us, like with nuclear bombs, man. Well, they're all safe and sanitary in our underground survival shelters with all the guns and all the money. Ha! Yeah, here. Now, here is a standard 9mm Uzi. 25-round clip. I think you'll like it. (laughs) Yeah, I like it. Now... You tell that lady to try that out on a dog or something first, just to get the hang of it. Oh man! So my question is, you know, obviously, you know, Hopper's in there just doing his thing, just dropping some truth bombs. But uh, is is the Uzi is that the gun of of the eighties? I feel like you don't see a lot of Uzis anymore in in films. That's Uzis and um uh what what's the name of the movie that I'm thinking of? Shoot, Escape from New York. Close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely an Uzi in that one. I remember that. Mm. I feel like it's a Uzi like in RoboCop. Oh, Die Hard. Oh yeah, Die Hard. of course. Yeah, yeah. Die Hard. <laughs> Eighty-eight. Yeah. Those are Uzis, yeah. right? John. Uh-huh. I was gonna say John McClane, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, John McClane. I, have- I now have an, a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> that, yeah. The Alan Rickman delivery is just incredible. <laughs> totally. Yeah, Uzis are quintessential Cold War weapons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I was looking into it too. I don't know why, but like, I, I guess I was like trying to look into like what the difference between an Uzi and a Mac Ten was. You know, I oh. don't know what led to that, but um, but yeah, I for some reason, yeah, that's what I found out that oh, Uzi is actually um, it's uh, it's from Israel, like the. Uh, the term is actually like um, it's uh, Hebrew, so I had no idea. Oh, um, and yeah, I mean, like one of the most memorable movie Uzis for me. It's not eighties anymore. It's nineteen ninety. Is um from uh, Tremors? Mm. Uh, <laughs> you guys remember oh. they had the license plate that was Uzi for you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant. Yeah. Dude. And I think, um, yeah, he's the character who's like continuous throughout the um, the the Tremor series because I mean, there's so many Tremors movies I can't even remember how many there were, but yeah, he's like the continuous character throughout it. Um, but yeah, I mean, with going back to Dennis Hopper, it's like this is just before you know he was completely back, like his second return. Uh, to cinema because you know he he's been exiled a couple of times, uh. But yeah, I mean you know the following year was was Blue Velvet. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Once he he got that, like you know it's like yeah, Hopper was was the man. Like you know it's like he could do whatever he wants. And then you know I mean I I still even enjoy his his role in Speed as well. Oh yeah, <laughs> all the crazy Hopper roles. Um, uh. But yeah, it's just it's it's another thing with this movie where you know with the casting just throwing hopper in there because i i don't know if uh if you guys know if uh altman collaborated with hopper again uh, in any other movies oh not that i know of yeah so this is the only one like it's just strange uh i mean i guess because hopper is kind of difficult to contain you know that this was the only movie that uh, he made with Altman, and you know he he's and we've talked about how he handles his ensemble cast, but I think yeah, uh, Hopper is kind of I guess a guy that uh, you know is difficult to control within this ensemble. And yeah, I wanted to mention a few more of the the cast members that stood out to me. This was an early role for uh, Cynthia Nixon. I know. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> so funny. Who ran for a New York governor a couple years back? That's right. She lost to she lost to Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, she did for in the primaries. I remember that. I voted for her. I think or no? Did I? No, I I voted for for Zephyr Teachout because she had a cooler name. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> <Sure>. name. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's a great role for her. I I barely recognize her. You know, she um because I guess it, it's not until like she spoke. Where I was like, oh, that, then it hit me that it was her. And she was like the first thing when I noticed the the Robert Altman signature shot of like you hear somebody speak and then the zoom gradually finds her, you know, and I thought that was like a really great moment. And then obviously she's she's great in the wedding sequence, too, where, you know, John Cryer really shines with the Uzi. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the little like uh, dance, like uh, dancing scene. 
totally yeah. random dance scene. Yeah, my gosh. Right. Yeah, this really weird dance scene. And then um, the dad, um, uh, Randall Schwab Sr., is played by um, Paul Dooley, who's also like a great um, Altman regular. Um, he's actually a lead in, in another Altman film that I really love called um, A Perfect Couple, mm-hmm. which is also a great L.A. Altman uh, movie. So, yeah, it, it, it starts in the Hollywood Bowl. It has a great opening scene in the Hollywood Bowl. So, yeah, Paul Dooley's excellent. So I love J- uh, Jane Curtin, too. As the yes. Alcoholic, the alcoholic mother with the, <laughs> all the drinks in her binoculars. I know. She was so funny. Yeah, the inventive hiding of the drinks is like one of the great running gags. But hiding hiding from hiding from no one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then when the cops finally catch up to it. It's just... oh, really? Yeah, it's great. But then also you got Tina Louise, you know, she was um she was in Gilligan's Island. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Not yeah, not Mar- Ginger. She played Ginger and so in this movie she is uh what's the Florence Bergero. Yeah. Bogero. Oh, Bogero. Oh, the, the nurse. <laughs> Florence's mom. The nurse. Yes. Yeah. That's great. That's yeah. pretty cool. Lawrence was Lawrence was a great character too. Yeah, something about those yeah. glasses really did it for me. I don't know what it was. I just was completely charmed by her. Yeah, it was also the dialogue. I think the way that like all like the dialogue was delivered was like so unique. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just uh, it's hard to really convince somebody who isn't on board with the movie to really like it. <laughs> it's just one of the things I, I feel like it would be hard to really recommend to right. people but yeah, yeah if you if you're tuned into it you would really enjoy it you I've know been, i've been telling everyone about it i think <laughs> that's everyone awesome thanks yeah. spreading the algorithm yeah. yeah boosting the algorithm yeah there's definitely a path where if you're out on the movie and you you see the lawrence character and you see john crier's character where you're like oh they're making fun of autistic folks or you can see that path if you're out whereas like hmm. If if you can kind of see the satire in you know maybe the it's just a dim you know like the Schwabs are just a, kind of like a dim family or the daughter who's married to the Asian guy seems a little out of it you know <laughs> yeah. you know Schwabs just like the general flavor of light racism that kind of like wafts through the Schwab household yeah so it's like you can kind of kind of just take the movie as is you know. Yeah, I mean, I can't wait for Gen Z to discover this movie and try to cancel it because they'll they'll just uh, nitpick so much sure. in it, you know. I mean, just even that that first Dennis Hopper clip that you played, you know. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So it's just yeah, we're we're in this era of taking offense to a lot of things, and I mentioned this before. Just OC and Stiggs, I don't really think they're particularly like likable. You know, but no. that's not important to me. Like, you know, it's the the movie and the vibe is enough to carry me through that I don't need to like the main characters, you know? I like the OC, but not Stiggs. But I don't hmm. think you're supposed to like Stiggs. Right? <laughs> so like, why is that? Is that just how you're drawn to people? OC, well, OC, you know, he's kind of... There is some sense that he's caring for his uh, ailing grandfather, right? Yeah. He, he is quite sort of humanized by his attraction to yeah. Cynthia Nixon character. But right. St- Stiggs is just so resolutely, like, there's almost like, it's almost like homoerotic, right? His obsession with <laughs> OC 
and he doesn't really have you know he, he doesn't really have any motivation beyond this revenge that he wants to exact from the schwabs and that's you know uh his driving motivation and then he just you know t- kind of takes advantage of the sluts right we don't even talk about the yeah. sluts but there are the sluts <laughs> even called sluts sure. he's just like it's like i'll call the sluts and we'll get and they go skinny dipping <laughs> with the sluts and they take the sluts to the um to the rest to of mexico the right and, and to the pool yeah and to the rest to the restaurants trying to make cynthia nixon jealous and like oh we'll just go with the sluts <laughs> and it's just like you kind of get the feeling that he's you know not the not very likable not the nicest person but he's i think there's something about how articulate he is right because we're right. talking about the dialogue it's like stiggs is the one who's always yeah uh, he's the talker yeah and he's kind of like the, the moral compass of the film where he's just you know he's got to take schwab down mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. but then he has this weird obsession with like stamps and africa or yeah and they keep like, mentioning uh what what is it that they're doing the long distance call which becomes the framing device of the movie is them yeah. basically after they perform this prank i think gabon, <laughs> gabon and like someone named bobo or something you know it's like yeah very yeah very odd but again you know it's one of those things i and i think if it were recast i think this is where i think the movie if it had a, a different cast for oc and stiggs especially stiggs Mm. that character might come off a little more charming you know if it was like a young jim carrey or something or like an anthony michael hall or something right yeah because i mean 85 was a weird science right and um uh, breakfast Mm. club he was in those two movies but i i think uh john hughes had like uh i guess uh um, like first dibs <laughs> Anthony Michael Hall I yeah. mean you know that's the other thing we haven't even mentioned who these two actors are who play OC and Stiggs like because we've never I've never seen another movie right. with them in like Daniel Jenkins who plays OC and Neil Barry like I don't know uh, I, I mean I love this feature on IMDb where it tells you like what they're known for and then mm-hmm. you know you see these four movies and you're like I have never seen any of these movies exactly yeah, yeah. this was their crowning achievement yeah, um, and I mean, uh, Daniel Jenkins was in The Irishman. It's oh, so f- huh. yeah, it's so funny that both of them were the leads in this movie, and it's not in their four like known for. Like Daniel Jenkins yeah. actually only has three movies. Like you couldn't put that other spot for O.C. Stiggs on one side. Yeah, come on. I want. Yeah, yeah, I know there has to be a major, major uh, reassessment of this film. Yes, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like I feel like there needs to be. It needs to like re-premiere at Venice or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would love for it to get like another run. Um, I mean, in the Twitter verse, like I'm actually seeing like uh, uh like one of our um, uh, fellow podcast friends, Steve, um, uh, men men in film pod. They uh-huh. they've been posting some screenshots of OC and Stig, so they've seen oh, cool. it recently. So okay, I think cool. it, it's 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 getting out there in the atmosphere, and I think Christina, with your algorithm, like yeah. it's definitely gonna spread. That's funny. some more telling all the high schoolers about it. So. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, I, I just love like the Gen Z TikTok like uh, movie reviews because <laughs> it's really like they pick on the wrong things of every movie. Like the yeah, I think there was even an article recently about these like TikTok movie reviewers because they're just awful. But you know they're <laughs> they're really popular <laughs> and they make a lot of money. 
Yeah. So, but I also think if you're, you know, there is like, there's are so many like just obnoxious, like the age gap discourse, and you know, mm. obviously a lot of these like discourses policing like you know racism yeah. and sexism and all of these things that's like we ha- we kind of have to take at face value when we watch older films or whatever and sure. but there's also uh, i mean i observe in my students all the time there's like a current of real appreciation and sort of like a spirit of cinephilia i feel that's just you know they want to they want to see classic films they want to have an appreciation for you know major directors and i think that that gets lost and you know the tiktok whatever the latest tiktok trend is right sure. yeah. yeah so christina would you recommend this to your students absolutely i think they should all <laughs> cool. yeah i think they all need to wrap their minds around you know just uh, like the idea of satire first of all in the first place right uh yeah i remember when i was in when i was in high school they gave us as a, either like an it was like an sat writing prompt or like an ap writing prompt an article from the from the onion and it was like half of my nice. classmates just had no idea it was satire because it's just the kind of thing that, you know, I think to the teenage brain, it's like they can't wrap their mind around yet. Whereas, you know, they have to they have to be exposed to, to it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, you know, there there is this weird thing with generations, how, you know, one generation or the current generation always rebels against the previous one. So maybe as we progress, like all these people who are so offended by the smallest things, like they're the next generation right after them just won't care. Yeah, it's like that's. I feel like we're seeing that push back to some extent now. We're seeing the pendulum swing the other way, which yeah, will be good in some ways, and then in other ways it'll be obnoxious. But um, I think that oh, we haven't talked about the final scene with the Ocean song, which is so it's been like stuck in my head, you know. Which is that when the band when the band comes to actually perform at the dance and they sing the song in honor of Osi and Stiggs, it's so funny because it's kind of like this very like campy way to wrap up a film, and <laughs> you just see Altman like taking that kind of device or premise and just like being such yeah like kind of a cynical like asshole about it. Um, That's awesome. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, it, it is curious to me with with like sequences like that and like um. Uh, I don't know if I came across this in my research, but um, how the film was shot, like if it was shot like in chronological order, because there, there's these stories about the making of it where um, apparently like Altman just gave up because, you know, he was just fighting with the studio all the time. So like there were certain scenes where he just like walked off and I, mm. I don't know who ended up directing the, the scenes. So yeah, it's just curious, like with moments like that, which is obviously pretty well directed. Like, was Altman still there at that time? You know? Sure. Um, but yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Christina, because yeah, I, I the final scene I remember is the them picking up Gramps from the the home. And that that classic line, you know, <laughs> that ends it. He, he's good with the these stingers at the end. We didn't even mention like the the last line in in Three Women is is a all timer where he says, "Why do you have to be so mean to her?" It's okay. Mm. So this does that happen after the? Um... Yeah, it does. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. The fun. Well, there is like a credits scene where they're like driving off, I believe. Um, in the the Gila uh, oh, monster. That's right. Yeah, yeah, but it's like uh, them picking up Gramps from the home because they finally got the money to get him out, and then uh, they introduce him to the nurse. And uh, <laughs> the last couple of lines is, um, uh, 
now what's your story on menopause, huh? And she says, I always pause for men, Harry. And that's the final line of the movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, then, wait, so hold on. So I'm confused. Is the musical scene that Christina is referring to, it's not the scene with the band that they get. That's what I thought, the, I, that's what yeah. I thought the finale was. Hmm. Maybe I'm no, getting the, confused. <laughs> there's definitely, I feel like more, because I feel like after the band, you still get the whole compound raid with Hopper. Oh, Oh, right? okay. Maybe I just remembered it that way. <laughs> it, my, my, I think my brain just like rearranged those things because it made more sense to me for it to have right ended up. <laughs> That's the yeah. beauty of this of this film. Yeah, uh, is that yeah? You, it's you, modal. It's like jazz. You can rearrange it yeah. any way you want. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I I really like that that music. Yeah, that band. It was really good. <laughs> and it's uh, um yeah it it feels it it almost felt like oh it was this all an advertisement to get to this point because like. <laughs> That's a solid five-minute music video right there. That's why I thought it was the end, too. Okay. It did feel like That's it was probably. all building to that moment. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, we didn't even mention that. The, 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 the choice of music for it, which we hear a hint of when you play that clip, Steve, of the opening, like that was also the other thing that brought me on board with it because it's like uh, Caribbean music. Or is it from Africa? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like Calypso. King, yeah, King Sonny. Yeah a day so where are they from oh they're from nigeria okay yeah. so it is african yeah um well, speaking of the altman music I, I put together a little cut here i wanted to play that's like uh just to juxtapose the music from three w- women and um oc and Stills. so so see see if you can tell when the music switches to uh oc and sticks pretty drastic <laughs> like I, I like to me it's like when you listen to these two tracks <laughs> like, I, I just can't believe it's like the same director right but it's just like it's just um yeah I don't know. it's pretty amazing that Altman <laughs> is like associated with like these two kinds of of uh of soundtracks or films well yeah. I mean uh, and then if you add Nashville in there Right, yeah. and then shortcuts. Like, yeah, if you guys listen to the music of shortcut, it's more jazzy. Like, it's uh, I think it's by Mark Eichen, so it's like, uh, yeah, it's great too. I mean, you know, the the music in in shortcuts is incredible. Um, and uh, Lori Singer too. She she actually plays the cello, so she has her her bit where she plays cello, like in the concert. Um, but yeah, that's really. I mean, I was just. I didn't even put two and two together that, yeah, basically these two movies were released 10 years apart, you know, right. it's, it's 77 and 87 uh, because wow. I always just had 85 in the back of my head, but yeah, what a difference a decade makes. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, I, I think Altman had mentioned with the score of three women that he, he was like, this isn't really my type of music, but it fits exactly. the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because he's a yeah, he's really more of a jazz guy, you know. Like, um, I, I think another one of his late masterpieces that I I enjoy is um, uh, that's also underrated is a uh, Kansas City, mm-hmm. you know, which yeah. is all about you know that era that um, he grew up in, you know. So, um, yeah, so he really is a musical guy, and um, yeah, the I think he was mentioning how he. He admired the composer. Uh, um, I might be like murdering his name. Uh, Christoph um, Penderecki, I believe his name is. 
um, who like Johnny Greenwood was very inspired by and kind of collaborated with him for um, the score of um, There Will Be Blood. So it's the same kind of dissonant, atonal type, uh, approach to to music, you know. Mm. Um, but <laughs> you can clearly see where the line is when you play <laughs> <Yeah>. it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, for uh, sure. You know, I made a little list of like the things that don't really age well with the Okay, movie. let's and, go. And, and, you know, so, some some of them like I can still rock and roll with. Like I don't mind the, the racial humor. I kind of like racial humor. <laughs> I don't mind them dropping the you know the R word in there, mm-hmm. and um, you know. The but John... you still can't say it, Steve. <laughs> Even though you don't mind it, <laughs> I'm shy. I'm shy. Um, but the one thing that I thought does not age well is how Mister Stiggs is like trying to like sexually assault the Ooh. nurse. You know, like like he basically he puts a move on her. That's a little like that's pretty damn creepy. I forget exactly what how he sets it up, but he's like with the Tina Louise character and like totally creeps up behind her and like gropes her. And you can <laughs> tell she's she's like feeling uncomfortable. Yeah, like to me that that's the one that's like, okay, that that can probably go. But I, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like like what's your takes? Yeah, I'm curious to hear Christina's take. I what if I mean I I didn't really like I thought that their flirtation was mutual okay. uh, just because she I mean, maybe because she fitted him for the glasses I don't know I don't know why I thought that but what did you guys sure. think of the sluts? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I we've kind of established this, Steve on on the podcast that you know I I don't really get offended by anything. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it, it it takes a lot to offend me. So I'm really more about like basically, you know, what is this film's like uh, intention and its vibe? And if that's part of it, that it is kind of offensive and, you know, then, okay, I'll, I'll roll with it. You know, um, that's really more my thing. I mean, there's, there's very few things. I mean, there's certainly some movies that I've seen where I, I found, found them offensive, like uh, because that was their goal was really just to offend um like um a serbian film i would say mm-hmm. is, sure. is one <laughs> so that's like an example um but uh but yeah with this film like i don't know there was just something about it where even that scene you mentioned um steve with the the assault um i don't know because it was just being played for laughs um like i i didn't really it didn't weigh that heavily f- mm. for me you know yeah. Yeah, it was a I felt like a lot of it was in good fun. Like it's hard. Mm-hmm. It would be hard for me to pinpoint one thing that I felt was inappropriate, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I guess cuz I didn't I just didn't laugh at that scene. I thought it was I thought it was trying to establish that he's a creep more than anything, mm. more than playing it for laughs. Whereas like the sluts I like the sluts. I, I don't know. I think the sluts were fun. Yeah, <laughs> the, like I, I thought that whole that whole thing, because again, OC and Six, they weren't actually trying to like skis on them. They were kind of like it seemed like they were all just kind of friends hanging out that just had you know a crude name. Right. They were just um, they were like buddies in a way, um, and they seemed you know down for the whole cause that they, you know, they wanted to mess with the Schwabs and get the lobster and whatever. Yeah. And, um, uh, we haven't even mentioned Martin Mull, uh, who plays the the neighbor. Yeah. Benefactor Pat Coletti. And like, yeah, the, 
uh, he definitely has some fun with the sluts as well <laughs> later on oh, sure. in the, oh, the no, movie. That's when they start modeling his clothes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like a million dollar idea. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh man. And yeah, that's what leads them to finally get grandpa out of the um Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this is an R-rated comedy, and you were mentioning Steve with with bottoms, you know, that it, it it's making a comeback, but it's not necessarily sexualized R. Um, but it's just strange to me that uh <laughs> I keep going back to three women, but that was the other Three women's rated PG, and there's that sequence when um you know Millie uh like she she ends up taking the rollout bed and has um uh Pinky's parents sleep in the bedroom, and then I I actually couldn't make out what they were doing initially. I was like, are they just kind of heavily petting? But then I got the confirmation that no, she actually caught them like having sex. Yeah, and that's in a PG movie, you know. They were wrestling, yeah. Yeah, they were wrestling. They were night swimming, you know. Sure. <laughs> That's what they were doing. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting, like well, mm-hmm. what you know, he got away the with rating. a decade ago, and then this one, yeah, it's obviously like yeah, R-rated movies for teens are a strange breed because it's like yeah, they, um, uh, some some of the target audience they're too young to even like get in on their own. Like they actually need that parent or guardian to see it. Sure. You know, yeah. it's funny because like, so I saw OC and Stiggs first and then when I watched Three Women, like one of my, one of the, one of the things I had like noticed was just how Millie and Pinky, they're kind of like bopping around town similar to OC and Stiggs, like in a car <laughs> kind of going, you know, to, from where they live to a bar and just kind of doing what they want. Um, and it's just so funny how different the whole vibe is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that is another uh, Altman recurring motif. I'm sure, Christina, you can uh, attest to that, is that she, he loves making buddy movies, you know? Like, MASH is a buddy movie. Uh, totally. You mentioned California, yeah, California Split. Split. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's a great one. I'm trying to think of, of others, but yeah, the, he definitely has a lot of movies where, yeah, mm. there's these great, like... And I mean, this one is probably the most explicit in its title, that it's the two main characters names but yeah he loves doing like these these buddy um sure. characters you know just going around hanging out you know? <laughs> um yeah okay well um this is gonna be a, a movie food first i reached okay. out to a, a buddy of mine nice andrew warren shout out to andrew out there he's he's also a cinephile he's the king of 1995 and 1996 releases he has watched every single one that's damn been, like, we need to get him on yeah. So I saw on Letterboxd, he had a really glowing review of OC and Stig. So I asked him if he would be kind enough to send in a video recording of his review. Okay. So if, if you don't mind, I'm going to play just a brief clip. So this is like like a 90 second clip of Andrew. So so why this is a, a first, I don't think we've ever had two guests on. So we have one live and one recorded. Awesome. So here's Andrew with his, his take. Here we go on uh, Robert Altman and OC and Stig's. Hi, this is Andrew Warren. I've been called in as a Robert Altman expert. I don't know if I would go that far, but my dad did work on a movie with him in the 90s and knocked on his trailer door and a plume of weed smoke would come out every day. So here's my take on O.C. and Stiggs. (laughs) What's amazing to me about O.C. and Stiggs is how connected it is to uh, 
two other films by Robert Altman that are just kind of about two disgusting guys having a great time. Those movies being California Split and MASH, almost to the mm. point where it feels like O.C. and Stiggs could be those guys' kids. Aside from that connection, uh, it's also directly connected to Nashville in that Hal Philip Walker, who's seen on Randall Schwab's TV, is this presence throughout Nashville. He's a presidential candidate who is spouting off this kind of folksy libertarian dime store wisdom, but you never see him in the flesh. There's a refrain kind of throughout Nashville of it don't worry me, right? There's all this craziness going on, but you know, you can't be bothered by it. And it's almost morphed now into the mid eight or the late eighties as a, you worry, what a fucking loser. <laughs> Aside from kind of divining Altman, whatever, it's also just a great eighties teen movie. Um, it's up there with the decades best. Uh, and O.C. and Stiggs are so, like, much more powerful than a Ferris Bueller that I feel like if they ever met, O.C. and Stiggs would just string him up to a cactus and then make him go to school. Nice. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Oh, that's great. That kind of ties together, I think, a lot of your guys, what you guys were bringing in about Nashville and um, some of the other films. But, uh, yeah, uh, he kind of hammers it home that it's it's representative of teen films it's representative of altman and it's representative of any film where there's just kind of two gross guys <laughs> yeah no that's perfect all right so i guess um i if do you guys have any more additional thoughts with um uh oc and stiggs i loved it <laughs> same here likewise i'm lukewarm on it um i think the characters would like those guys would crush in like the Anon like shit posting Twitter game. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, I think my, <laughs> I think my final take. All right. Yeah. Well, I guess I agree with the bot. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the bot agrees with me. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. It, like there's uh, this weird, like uncanny Valley now where I don't know if the bot is like reading my likes and, you know, just kind of, that's right. Um, oh, interesting. Projecting yep, it. <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, so we've gone through this journey with Altman. So I, I need to know, Christina, like, what is your top three or five Altman films? Mm. Oh, definitely three women. And then a, okay. three women, the long goodbye, and then uh, probably Nashville. Wow. Okay. Yeah. What about you? Um. Yeah. Actually, Long Goodbye is tops on my list, uh, and it always will be. I remember too because um, the first time I saw it in the theater was actually after, like, directly after Altman passed away in two thousand six. Um. So yeah. I, I mean, I I was kind of bummed about Prairie Home Companion. I was hoping that wasn't his last movie. Um. But then, yeah, the the new art in L.A. like brought it back, brought back the Long Goodbye. So. Um, and I remember, um, uh, I don't know if you guys know the, the standby in, in the noir. I don't think he works for them anymore. Um, Mark Edward Hoyk, I think is how you pronounce his last name. But um, he uh, he was the movie uh, geek in Beat the Geeks. <laughs> this is like a very like deep cut. But anyway, he, he's a really knowledgeable guy. So he introduced uh, the long goodbye um, for that screening, uh, you know, after... Uh, Altman pass so that that always will have a special place for me and you know we talk about music I mean that's probably his most minimal I think in terms of music because it's just basically John Williams score like um rescored in different ways like it even plays mm -hmm. as like the the supermarket um uh, Muzak yeah <laughs> and 
Yeah, I I also love that the supermarket where uh, Elliot Gould or uh, Marlowe goes like buy his cat food is John's, which is the Hispanic version of Vaughn's. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. <laughs> so a big fan of that. Um, yeah, so long goodbye. Uh, I I mean I would say OC and Stiggs is up there. You know, like it's wow. really gone up in the ranks for me um because i was just so enamored with it and yeah i'm looking forward to watching it again and this one i'll probably watch sooner than three women and then yeah uh, another movie you mentioned christina is a uh, california split that's definitely up there and um shortcuts uh so yeah those are my top altman's uh i mean steve you've you've, you've watched yeah. less but yeah, I mean, I, I would say the three I've watched are, are my top three. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I think I would definitely want to see now the long goodbye. It's been on my list for a long time, so maybe this will give it that necessary bump up mm-hmm. to like the top of the queue because um, the player was um, really enjoyable. Um, and the, yeah, and I kind of just watched that serendipitously also where it's like, Altman was on my mind and then I was listening to a podcast and they mentioned that movie and I was like, Oh, well, I guess I got to watch it. Um, yeah. Did you say your, your wine pairing for OC and Stiggs? No, let, let's get into it. Christina, what's your wine pairing for OC and Stiggs? You know, I, I mentioned lost boys. Um, mm. I'm actually like looking that. for something a little more. My understanding is that OC and Stiggs is based on a, uh, it's based on national like, lampoon yeah national lampoon cartoon right <laughs> so since he also adapted popeye from a cartoon i'm sort of thinking right. like what's another kind of cartoon adaptation come to life that i could pair it with um nothing is nothing like really that compelling is coming to mind but i'm going to keep thinking about it okay yeah well maybe while steve and i give our wine pairings yeah, yeah. you know you can think about it. So yeah, Steve, what's a wine pairing for you for OC and Stiggs? So the one I got um, is Jake and Amir. That it's a what? series of <laughs> series of sketches. Okay. Do you know the Jake and Amir? No, I've never heard of it. So Jake and Amir, they do these. Uh, I think it was on College Humor. They did these sketch, these like three minute sketches on you know online. Mm. And it and it, but it's you know it's a similar premise where it's like two two guys and they're. They, you know, they act weird. They do weird things. Um, but it's like, I, to me, I, it's almost what I wanted OC and Stiggs to be mm. as opposed to what it was. I think I was like hoping it, it would kind of be this episodic, these, uh, I, I almost wanted it to be weirder, I think in my mind. So I think I need to put OC and Stiggs down for a couple of years, come back to it with a, I think a clean slate to kind of give it the once over. Cause it seems like a lot of people really enjoy it. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I'm, I'll be curious uh, for us to revisit it in a couple years and you uh, let me know. Sure. You got <laughs> it. Yeah. That'll be a new segment. Um, yeah. So my wine pairing is actually um, a movie called knockoff with John Claude Van Damme uh, oh. directed <laughs> by um, tree heart. Have you seen this Steve? I feel like I have seen this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's also another movie that's like a disaster. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, it's a very compromised project. Like it was supposed to be like, uh, I think Sammo Hung like choreographed the fight scenes uh-huh. and all of that was cut out of the movie. Jesus. But yeah, yeah. Regardless of it being a disaster like Ozzy and Stiggs, it still works. 
you know, it's a very enjoyable movie. And you know kind of right away, like there, there's a rickshaw like chase race mm-hmm. scene in the yeah. movie and that's really when you know if you if you're you're on board with that scene you'll be on board for the rest of the movie sweet yeah okay cool so knock off i gotta watch that one yeah it's great it's so much fun um so yeah were you able to think of um a live action adaptation christina uh not one that's really sure. not one that's really okay. calling to me right now all right. Well, if you do think of it later, we'll we'll throw it in the notes. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. So uh, uh, yeah. I also wanted to ask you, Christina. You know, what's next for you in in the Altman journey? Like, I'm sure you're you're really gonna dive more into his his filmography. Absolutely, and a lot of it's about uh, accessibility too. Um, right. But I'm definitely looking at you know to the studies. I want to watch one quintet and um, there are a few other movies um, that preceded the long goodbye is especially I think is something like based on what I've read about it it's uh, the, the Altman film that's like three women uh, images did you yeah. mention images okay. yes uh, and then I don't have Ian Brewster McLeod have either of you seen no. no, no. Um, yeah, I haven't. I mean, it came out the same year as as Mash, uh, so it was basically overshadowed. But yeah, I am curious about uh, Shelley Duvall's, you know, that's screen inc- debut. That's an incredible. I just it's uh, proceeds according to dream logic a little bit like Three Women. So I have oh, to. I definitely have it. to go back to it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I would recommend it for you guys as well. I think it's on Max. Last time I looked, it was on Max. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely cool. check that out. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm definitely curious about a few more 70s. Like, actually, one of the big blind spots for me of like his kind of heavy hitters is um, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's one I, I definitely want to revisit. I want to go back to Pop Pop. I actually have the Blu-ray for it. I found it cheap somewhere, and <laughs> I, I want to revisit it and see if it holds up from when I enjoyed it as a kid. Um, and I, I, in a weird way, I, I, I don't know how I ended up with a copy of Buffalo Bill and the Indians, mm-hmm. which I think was the movie he made before, um, three women. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that one too. Those are some of the, the next few Altman's on my, my, my plate. Awesome. Excellent. All right. So yeah, I guess that, that wraps up our episode. Ooh. Um, yeah, we, we made it. Thank you, Christina, for being such a good sport and bringing your unique, uh, algorithmic, uh, perspective to our show. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm, so, I'm yeah. glad that, uh, we can wrap up now before I run out of battery. I have to power down. <laughs> Go, uh, recharge yeah. for, uh... that's key well, <laughs> for sure before you power down where uh where can people find you you know on twitter or your sub stack anything like that yeah mona lisa v- uh, mona lisa video on twitter and instagram and then my sub stack is christinapolitano.substack.com excellent yeah i actually subscribe to that and you mentioned that you're actually gonna have a, a three women Substack uh, that you're going to share as this episode drops as well. I'm really excited about this essay. It's actually been 10 years in the making. So, wow. Yeah. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Sign up. Yeah. So, you got to sign up on that Substack. Christina Politano. 
And of course, Carlo, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieFoodPod. Yes. Carlo's great Twitter at Carlo Kino with two Ks. I'm on there too at Steve Positron. We got a Patreon. Help us keep the lights on. Uh, Patreon.com slash MovieFood. Carlo's got a letterboxed at Carlo Kino. Carlo Kino yes. with two Ks. Again, once again. Yeah. Uh, Consistent. And, uh, yeah. And um, you can also, f- I think we might start posting a little more from the movie food pod letterbox as well. So that's just kind of a little under undercover hit. Yeah. Carlo, that is it. All right. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you guys. Mm -hmm.